Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are continuing our adventures in a galaxy far, far away. Yes, we by, are. By revisiting Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Two weeks ago on this show, we revisited The Phantom Menace. And our attempt was to have a genuine critical discussion from the unique vantage point of maybe we don't hate this movie like it's the plague. Yeah. In fact, we actually kind of like it. In fact, again, it's a good movie. Yes. And we had such a fun time doing that one. Yeah. And you guys seem to enjoy it so much. And we needed a topic for this week. And we couldn't just talk about Digimon Story again because we're not at the same place in that game. So... Why not? We're going to talk about Attack of the Clones this week. Yes. We were maybe going to wait longer. Fuck it. Fuck it. Fuck it. Fuck it. We're also going to talk about some movie trailers, and we're going to talk about some news, and we're going to talk about everything we know from, like, Super Bowl trailer stuff up to 7 p.m., basically. Yes. On the night of the Super Bowl, because that's when we're recording this. Um, so, yeah, that'll all be fun. We'll check back in with Digimon and uh, Dragon Ball Fighters for, like, five minutes. Um, but real quick, like, over, you know, we do this as a preview to our topic every time. Sean, Attack of the Clones, you revisited it. I know yeah. we were both very curious, what did we actually think of this movie as adults? What'd you think? I like it way more now. I do yeah. too. Yeah, I think it, again, I do not think it is as good as The Phantom Menace. I think it definitely has some issues that, like, I think the issues that everybody knows about. But I think it also has a lot of, like, really remarkable strengths that yes. people maybe don't appreciate. Um, and I think, like, on the whole, like, I think as a movie, I think it functions really well, and it, I really enjoyed it. So I think, I think, again, not as good a movie as episode one, but still, I would say, in the good movie bucket. Absolutely in the good movie bucket. I like it a lot, and I've always kind of liked Attack of the Clones, and then I went through this, you know, my goth period where I... Did, not actually, but where I had the peer pressure of, like, you have to hate the prequels. Yes, and I was the like, Star Wars goth. Yes, the Star Wars goth of, like, the sand speech ruined my life. And no, the sand speech is actually kind of a good moment in that film. Yeah, and, and it's, it, also, like, it's, it's, it is nowhere near, like, the most wooden delivery in that movie. It's actually, like, totally fine. Yes. I don't, like, re-watching it now, I do not know why people pick that line out as being, like, the fucking nadir of that film. Because I actually think the worst line in that scene is three lines later yeah. or so, with him describing how smooth Padme is, which, yeah. you know, some of, you know, some of it is supposed to be creepy, some of it crosses the line. We'll get into all that. I'm excited to talk about this movie. It's a you Star did. Wars movie I genuinely Love. I, I don't think it's as good a movie as like The Phantom Menace or Revenge of the Sith, but I I've always I think when I am I allow myself to just be myself in my own heart, I've always loved watching Attack of the Clones. Yeah. I I will say this to you know this might be an incendiary statement, but I think that I think this is definitely true of Episode One. But I also think Episode Two is better than Force Awakens and Rogue One, pretty easily in my book. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I yeah. I, I think. Force Awakens in Episode 2 would maybe be on in a similar plane to me. I don't know if I could tell you which one I think is better. Uh, I think Rogue One is the worst Star Wars movie, so that's in its yeah. own fucking Nadir field. But yeah, uh, let's go ahead and get into stuff, though, Sean. All right. Um, let's do a quick update on our thoughts on the games we reviewed, spoiler-free, last week. Yeah. Dragon Ball Fighters and Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory. We're still not going to go into spoilers for either of these. I also don't really know how you spoil Dragon Ball Fighters, but yeah. whatever. No, um, yeah. They fight, you know, crazy shit ensues. It's a what-if story, that sort of thing. Um, but I have not gotten to play much Fighters in the last week, and you said you had 
hadn't really either. Yeah, I've gotten a little bit further into fighters. Like, honestly, the most time I've spent with fighters is watching YouTube videos of people who are good at fighters play Dragon Ball Fighters because it is a very fun game to watch. We did spend, uh, after we were finished last week's podcast, we just uh, got on your couch and played that for about an hour. Yeah. And then my computer had to update just now before we started recording, and so we played another ten minutes of it. It's so fun. It's Yeah, it's, it's a just, really good fucking game. I don't know if I have more to add right now. It's great. I just, I have not, one, I, I'm in the process of moving, and I, like, the time to sit on my couch, like, with a, a PlayStation game is very limited. Like, Digimon's been easier because I also have it on Vita, where right. I can move around with it. Um, but yeah, I've also been so into Digimon that I, I want to give both games kind of the proper attention, but it's so good. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I will I will shout out really quickly, like, one of the main sort of, like, resources I've been going to outside of the game is a YouTuber slash, like, Twitch streamer named Maximilian Dude. It's D-O-O-D, Dude. Um, and he's, he's like, a, I've never really watched much of his stuff, but I've known about him as, like, a big sort of, like, YouTube, YouTube like, Twitch stream figure in the fighting game community for a number of years. And he has a bunch of really cool videos of him playing through the game from his streams on his YouTube channel. And, and if you want to sort of, like, get a sense of what higher-level Dragon Ball Fighters play looks like, but then also have, like, an entertaining sort of personality explain some of that shit, that's a good place to go to. Nice. Um, and I will also just say, like, because I was watching some of the videos uh, earlier today, that got me really excited. And then I had, like, it's like, oh, now I have to play this game. And then I played it, like, I'm not, I'm not good enough to do any of this cool shit. But he did this one fucking combo in the middle of a match with Goku, uh, Super Saiyan Goku, and then, like, another critical feature was Super Saiyan Blue Goku. Of he did what is like kind of the standard big air combo that you do, where you kind of like knock them in the air, and you do he did this stuff like a pretty long air combo of like kind of normal hits. And then finished it with Goku's sort of dash forward smash down attack that he has, a sort of like special attack he has, and knocked the opponent down to the ground. And then, like while they were falling, did the quarter circle forward R one attack or R two attack, which is his Kamehameha. But if you do R two, it's the warp variety, which means you teleport down to the ground and fire it up at an angle. Which I've never figured out how to put that into a combo because I'm not good at the game. But like he, you know, put smashed into the ground, teleported down, and fired up at an angle. And then while that was happening, you can also cite when you use a super in that game, you can uh, tag in one of your teammates to do their super at the same time. And it just so happens that he had Super Saiyan Blue Goku, and Super Saiyan Blue Goku's super is a Kamehameha where he jumps up and fires it down at an angle. So basically the enemy, he smashed the enemy down, they fell down into the middle, he teleported down with normal Goku, fired up with a Kamehameha, and tagged in Super Saiyan Blue Goku who jumped in and fired a Kamehameha at the like reverse angle to create what I can only describe as a Kamehameha sandwich with the opponent in the middle. And it is maybe the coolest thing I've ever seen, and I desperately think the show needs to fucking put that in as like a fighting move. Like obviously you can't use two Gokus. But it was it. Goku has a lot of friends. Yeah, like it's the the quality of that game because that's just one moment that like really stuck out to me. But there's a quality of that game when you see high level people playing it that it just looks like you're watching a fight from the show, like from this like weird sort of camera angle sometimes. But the the it has a weird sense of flow and choreography to it that when like really crazy shit pops off, you can really tell that some crazy shit popped off, which but, is something that like a lot of fighting games a high level play. I find it like it's inaccessible. I can't tell. Like it's like I can kind of get the sense that that player just executed something really like difficult and masterful, but it doesn't have like the visual impact. This game has all the visual impact. Yep. I wonder if like you know Dragon Ball Super ever comes back. If we're going to start to hear stories of like 
the animators are bored at work, they can't figure out what to draw for the fight, so they just play Dragon Ball Fighters and copy what they see on screen. Yeah, because I think you could totally make some pretty amazing fucking fights that way. Yes, no, it's it's a hell of a thing. And not just like they look like fights from the show, they frankly look better than fights from most parts of the show. Yes, because, that's a good point. You know, it's got kind of a higher budget and more polish on it, weirdly. Yes. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory. Mm-hmm. I am super, super deep into that, even though I haven't actually made a ton of progress in the story since last week. I was what in, chapter are you on? I must be at the tail end of 8 or about to start 9. Okay. But I'm in 8, but I've been in 8 for a while. Yeah, I remember that one being pretty long. Yeah, and I'm loving the story and everything, but I am also so deep down the rabbit hole of getting all my Digimon around that I yeah. am, and I've also like... I've got the tools now where I can grind pretty effectively. Like, I've got one Platinum Numamon. I've got a Tactician USB. I, I've got Kowloon Level 5 where you can get some good XP farming. And I'm just, I've just been going to town. I've got a Weirgarurumon Black that has okay, been yeah. up and down that chain so many times. And he's become a Metal Garurumon Black. And he can get to the next one. But that means I, get a, I need to get a Stingmon at Cam 100% right. to be my friend. So I'm also leveling up a Stingmon... And then I've also got all this other shit going on. Meteormon, who was my initial Digimon yeah. in this game, has been all the way up and down. He's been a totally different Digimon. Now he's back to being Meteormon, because I'm trying to get his stats up enough that I can get him to the next level. It's like, it is such a mindfuck, this game, because all the Digimon, like the new Digimon you can get, like they're so much more complicated to Digivolve than they were in the first game, generally. And... Like, it's a real challenge, but it is so fun. And, like, I've played enough of Digimon Story, Cyber Sleuth, the two games at this point, that I'm getting pretty good at it, and I'm just so into it, where it's like, I want to go on with the story, but I also just kind of want to grind for a little bit and see if I can get this guy to this level and then, you know, see what new cool Digimon I'm going to get and then go use him in a battle. It's all so rewarding. These are such amazing games, Sean. Yeah, yeah. I have I have finished, I like just last night from the recording of this podcast, finished Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory, the yes. full title of the game. It's important because you need to distinguish it from Digimon Story, just Cyber Sleuth. Yes. Um, and yeah, like I I was in a similar place with you of love. I, I started my full grinding process later in the game because I waited until I had a three platinum Numimons and a bunch of tactician USBs and just fucking went to town. <laughs> I spent like two hours just just getting every like like you know to the point where I'm just scrolling through the Digi Journal looking for like the little like in the Digivolve section like looking was like okay that one I haven't don't have yet. I was just like, how the fuck do I get that guy? Like, I gotta, like, get all these people up the tree. I discovered... This is something I think, like, people should know if you're, like, interested... If you're playing this game and you're interested in getting a lot of the high-level Digimon that are, like, new to Hacker's Memory, is that... Because some of it's a little bit tricky if you're not looking for them. Uh, there are a lot of extra steps up from a lot of the high-level Digimon from the end of the last game. So, like, Alphamon has another form that he can evolve into. Uh, Gallantmon has another form. Diaboramon has, like, a bunch of them have another form that they can go up to, which is one of the ways they added new Digimon in. It's not just new chains. And a lot of those are really fucking cool. And, And in particular, I think they did a good job of balancing the new Digimon since I got all the ones in the last game. I was only really focused on on Digivolving and using the new ones. And a lot of those high-level ones are both really fun to use and they synergize really well in such a way that it's very easy to just use a team of the new ones and they work really well together. And, and I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. 
what did you think of finishing the game? Like, spoiler-free reactions to now that you can say something on yeah. the whole for this game. Yeah. Uh, I really like it. I think it's... I would say it's not quite as... The story is not quite as good as the first one to me, um, but it's very different. It goes in... Like, it goes in some different directions that are cool. Um, I like... I like the ways it ties into the ending and splits off from... Or, like... Like, ties into the, some of the stuff from the end of the last game, but then also, obviously, it's going in its own direction and doing its own thing, and the way that, like, those events kind of, like, affect one another is interesting. And I think they do a good job of sticking to the yet another side storyness of it in a way that's good. Like, the way, like, and especially just everything of, like, the end end of the game is fucking great. The only complaints I would have is I think there's some pacing stuff that I wish was smoothed out towards the end of just, like, I think it's, like, kind of does that JRPG thing of, like, feeling like okay i'm at the end of the story but i have to like kind of like fight like this boss and this boss and this boss and kind of and i was kind of done with that at that point because partially because i was so powerful by that point in the game that even playing it on hard mode yeah i had like all the most powerful digimon at like level 99 so it's yeah. like kind of like without the boss fights being difficult I, I kind of wish that that they kind of expedited a little bit of that stuff because i think the story is really good there but no major complaints i think it's a really really awesome game if you like if you played Cyber Sleuth and and you were looking for more, I think Hacker's Memory. It's like basically the same as we said when we started talking about this game. Hacker's Memory is that with a great new story with great new characters, and I think they see through all the characters to a like great conclusion. It's I'm just I'm so invested in this plot and these characters right now. Like I wouldn't really know how to qualitatively compare it to Cyber Sleuth One just in my memory at the moment because um, it's been you know two years since I played that and it's right. faded a little bit, but. I just I, I'm I'm constantly amazed how good all the writing is, how fresh it all feels. That it doesn't feel like they threw it to a B team and had them like come up with sixty new hours of story content because it could easily do that. Right. And I'd probably forgive them for it if the gameplay was fun and it is, but it really is an above and beyond sequel. I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, I have one other piece of stuff to share, which I have on the outline as Thomas's PlayStation Adventures, and that's my brother Thomas. And I just think it's a funny story that oh, right. I have gotten him really into PlayStation. Good, yeah. Because I, uh, earlier this year, gave him, or last year, gave him my Vita, my yes, old Vita. Yeah, and we went through that in yep. a whole other, yes. like, Thomas's adventure section on yes. this podcast, their current feature. And he played all of Persona 4 Golden and fell the fuck in love with it. Of, of course, course, as everybody does. Yes. Yeah. And then I gave him, I said, hey, you, you, want, you want some more? You want, you want some more? And I gave him the cart for Persona 4 Dancing All Night. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen a person as obsessed with a game as Thomas Lack is with Persona 4 Dancing All Night. It's a game Thomas, worth obsessing over. John, Sean, I mean, he's a musician, one. And right. that is such that is a true rhythm game. You know, like, it's it's not like pressing, you know, colorful buttons on a fake guitar. Like, there's actual, at the higher levels, you need rhythm yeah. to get that. Like Definitely. Johnny Cash told you, get yes. rhythm. You know, you've got to have it, and he has it, and he's very good at it. He's so good at it that he is not only beating every song on All Night Difficulty, he is forcing himself to get a king crazy on every song nice. on All Night Difficulty. That is the difficulty level where, or, or the achievement where you have to get 100% on the song, not miss a single note, not break a chain, be perfect. Yeah. He's, an in, he's a maniac about it, but he's so good. It is crazy. And he also, he's so good at it, he's at, like, number 10 worldwide on some of the leaderboards on these songs. Nice. Like, he's really gotten into Persona 4 Dancing all night. He's been watching, like, all the YouTube videos about what's coming up for Persona 3 and 5, Dancing Moon and Star Night, respectively. Yep. And he's, like, so excited for those games. 
And in the midst of all this, he was so obsessed with Persona 4 dancing all night um, that something bad happened. This wasn't because he was obsessed with it, but uh, the Vita that I had given him broke. Because <laughs> okay, when but, they, yeah, okay. Like, he didn't break it because of the game. Like it wasn't oh, out of anger. Because I think that well, no, I think you could break that one hundred percent not out of anger. anger yes, playing that game at all night mode on slums like the hardest like handful of songs that game. I could one hundred percent see yes. breaking a Vita just by playing the fucking game. I understand. What he says happened is that he uh, he had the Vita on his bed. He was like putting stuff away and just like tossed his iPad onto the bed. Like non, because you do that sometimes. Just like yeah. toss something on the bed, and I guess the corner of the iPad he hit the Vita screen, and the Vita screen isn't very powerful, and it just shattered. So that that's fucked up. He has sent that in to Sony for repairs because it was actually cheaper than buying a new Vita, just doing it out of warranty. In the meantime, he got because they're cheap now a PlayStation TV, so he could keep <laughs> because he didn't want to wait. He's so obsessed with Persona Four dancing all night, so he's been playing. I should also say he has like a 4K monitor, so he's got a Vita TV plugged into his 4K monitor Persona 4 Dancing All Night holds up surprisingly well at that resolution and he's playing it with a DualShock 4 and even though like the PlayStation TV has a bunch of problems I've learned including that um, it drops controller inputs all the time especially wirelessly so he has to play with it wired in and even then it'll still drop sometimes I guess but it works well enough he's getting his king crazies and all that but like that's how obsessed with this thing he is and now I was asking him the other night like so you like the Vita now and he's like I don't really know about the Vita, but I like these games, you know, which I totally get. Yeah. And he is now talking about uh, just getting a PlayStation 4 because there's enough games on that he wants to play. I and can think of one video game currently out on the PlayStation 4 that maybe came out early last year that was maybe number 10 best game of the year of 2017, One Hot's Name Iku Project Eva Future Tone. I, I think he'd like that, yes. Maybe he would like that. I think he would. And he's talking about that, and he's thinking about, like, he's so into it, he's saying... I said, yeah, the Slim is really cheap now. And he's like, I think I'd get a Pro. Which does make sense if, yeah. like, at this point you're going to get a new one. He also does have a 4K monitor, so, like, he wants to play. Like, he wants to play Horizon Zero Dawn also. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, if you if you want to appreciate a beautiful game, might as well do it in beautiful 4K. Right, yeah. But, yeah, no, I, which I approve of. Like, he's a PC gamer, and he, you know, has, he can play most games on that. But the PlayStation obviously has more than enough exclusives that you could play all the cross-platform stuff on PC and still justify having a PS4. Yeah, I mean, you're so, not going to play Hatsune Miku Project Eva Future Tone on your fucking PC, I can tell you that much. No, I just love this. I want to like follow up on this because I remember when I got into my PlayStation Vita and then my PS3 and PS4 and all that... Back in like 2012, 2013. Right. Um, you know, we had been an Xbox family for many years, and Thomas felt betrayed, like I was leaving the family system. And now I'm like, yeah, you see, this is where the games are. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Anyway, I just think it's funny. Um, yeah, so that's the. Oh, also, he uh, tried. I told him that, because he didn't know this, that there's remote play on PC, so you can remote right, play yeah. mm-hmm. from your PC to the PS4. And he's like, oh, that's cool. I could play. Dragon Ball Fighters that way without like dragging your PS4 over here, and he tried it. Remote play with Dragon Ball Fighters does not work no, well. Yeah, any any sort of like input like latency sort it's, of reliant game like Fighters is not going to work. It's like not that. just the input latency; it's that that game is way too visually complex. Oh sure, and yeah, when, yeah. Whenever like a special move or any kind of energy blast goes off, the screen just macro blocks itself itself into oblivion. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, and I and he's like. 
really? You think this is a good feature? I'm like, it's great if you're like grinding in Digimon or something. You yeah, know? like, like that's I, what it's for. I have used that sometimes in specific instances with my laptop for games like a Digimon story yeah, yeah. or like like Final Fantasy 15. I did that a bit. Uh, yeah, like I think it's a cool like utility. Mm-hmm. It is not like the exclusive way I would ever play any game, but no, it, is, no, no. it is a nice feature to have because it's yeah. it's useful in specific circumstances. Yes. Anyway, I just. I just, I feel vindicated on all this. Yeah. So, Sean, you want to move on to some news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? All right, we have to start with a sad piece of news. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we'll get to the fun stuff, but we have to do the sad stuff first. And the sad stuff this week, uh, well, the sad stuff in our end of the world this week. <laughs> yeah. Is the New York Times this weekend published an interview with Uma Thurman, uh, where she talked about her experiences both with Harvey Weinstein, which was the... Uh, very sad but predictable side of that story because Harvey Weinstein obviously is a, a well-known monster at this point. Uh, and the slightly less predictable side of it, which is Quentin Tarantino, who is a seemingly a monster in a very different way. And I thought this was a tremendously sobering piece. I thought it was an eye-opening piece. I think Uma Thurman was not, you know, just, as we say with everyone, brave to come out and talk about all this, but also just amazingly eloquent in how she framed all this into the larger cultural moment, into her life experiences, into the life experiences of women, not just in her industry, but in the world. Um, You know, we all know Uma Thurman is awesome. That's never been in doubt. But you also see here, I think you get a sense of how much of her career was robbed from her by these guys um specifically you know the big revelation from this story was during the filming of kill bill not only was quentin tarantino fairly weird and abusive throughout that film he insisted on doing a lot of like that the close-ups where like uma thurman's character the bride is like being choked or hurt in some way he would often be the person doing that in the scenes which is weird uh, in a lot of ways um and also, like, I think took it, for, it sounds like took it further than just, like, play acting, you know, with it, which is one thing. But, you know, yeah. moving on to actual choking and things. Uh, and then near the end of shooting for one of the shots where the bride is driving in a car down a road and the camera's on her, um, Uma Thurman was not comfortable doing the stunt driving. She thought it was a kind of a crappy car she was in, didn't seem safe on a crappy road, didn't seem safe. She was not comfortable doing that. Also, and, like, like, like she was not comfortable and there were, like, different people in the crew all yes. said, like, this is not safe, like, this is not, like, this car is, there's a good chance that this will be dangerous with this car. Yeah, there's a reason we have stunt people. Yeah. You know, like, stunt drivers would know how to do that. Uma Thurman is not a trained stunt woman. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, it's a, it's a gap of experience, obviously. And Tarantino you know, insisted that she do that because he wanted something special for his shot that, of course, he could have gotten another way, but, you know, he's a dickhead auteur, uh, so he has to have it his way. Insisted she do it. She did it. The car crashed. Um, this, I, I'm amazed this has not come out in, yeah. like, the years since that film because it was a, it was a bad crash. She was badly injured. Um, those injuries are still with her, it, like, neck and back stuff. It's I, it seems like one of the primary reasons she really has never done an action movie since Kill Bill, despite, you know, obviously you would think after Kill Bill she would be one of the most in-demand action stars in the world. Yeah. And that didn't materialize because she literally can't do the work because of those injuries. Um, she couldn't speak about it afterwards because Tarantino was refusing to apologize and refusing to let her out of certain contractual obligations for press stuff. They've had a very bad relationship ever since. 
I think, and then on top of that, you know, Harvey Weinstein was sexually abusive towards her as well. Tarantino did not take those concerns to heart, even though Uma Thurman voiced that to them. You know, Tarantino, who was supposed to be Uma Thurman's friend, Uma Thurman, who is a very powerful actress, especially in that setting, being the star of these movies, still could not get a guy like Harvey Weinstein banned from the set, still couldn't get a director who's supposed to be her friend to listen to her. There's just, there are a lot of sins outlined in that story, and... A lot of them are laying right at the feet of Quentin Tarantino, and they should not be ignored. I don't care how much you like his movies. Yeah, no. And it's it's something of where I didn't like find it particularly surprising that he's a piece of shit, because he's yeah. always seemed like a piece of shit. But it is like... It is another level to like have like There's the direct difference. and obvious evidence of like, like you're a piece of shit that like... Who's so obsessed with this like vision of your movie and and of being this person that's like like you sort of said like the auteur bullshit that that you are not taking the safety of these people and your friends and your cast and your crew seriously like that's fucking horseshit and you should like you shouldn't be working in movies no like you shouldn't be working in any industry if you're not taking the safety of the people around you as like the number one concern because that is always the number one concern i don't give a shit about your movie if you're if you're not if you don't go into it with that attitude, absolutely. And you know, I, I guess the, the distinction I would make is I always assumed Quentin Tarantino was kind of a douchebag, but hopefully a harmless douchebag because like you can seem like a dick right. and not be out there actively hurting people. I had I and maybe it was out there and I hadn't heard it or I was willfully blind to it. I hadn't heard about him like actively hurting people. You know, this is through both actions and inactions actively hurting the star of his movie. Let alone, what do we not know about people less powerful than Uma Thurman, you know? Because she's the top-line star of that movie. There are a lot of other people on the cast and crew in a Quentin Tarantino film. And, you know, not only does he get to keep working after doing that to his star, he gets bigger budgets, and he gets Oscars, and he gets... You know, after the Weinstein Company dissolved because of the allegations last year, there was a huge bidding war for Tarantino's um, Manson, Charles Manson movie that he's making. And, of course, he gets richer than ever off of all of it and has more resources than ever. Like... I'm disgusted we have not yet, and maybe it'll happen in the new week because we'll be in the business week, but I really hope whatever studio is working on his new movie says something about this. I very much doubt they would cancel the whole project, but they better, you know, get ahead of this and say that they're going to take safety concerns seriously with this guy. Yeah. You know, you cannot leave... If he has a history of this, you can't leave him unsupervised to do what he wants on a film set, period. Yeah. You know, I really don't care who you are. Or how good people think your movies are. Safety is absolutely number one. There is no reason. There is no justification to make a movie in unsafe fashion. Yeah. You know, it's one, it's just a movie. And two, whatever you think you need for your beautiful shot, there's another way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know? And if you have to compromise slightly, hey, that's art. Fuck you. You know? Exactly. It is insane. I'm disgusted. You know, Quentin Tarantino has always been a, a director whose films... I loved and I've been vocal about that and you know um, one of one of the people who there have been a couple people like that through you know this last year of allegations where I've rethought my relationship to those directors or actors or something and I do think one of the things that this has taught me is about the hero worship culture in film criticism yeah and the industry, and that we need to be able to separate those things a little more because 
not that you shouldn't praise people whose work you find good. Right. But I think elevating the person to the level of godhood, which I think is something that many of us share the blame for, is the thing that makes him untouchable in a scenario like this. Because I don't think anything's going to happen to Quentin Tarantino. No. He's way too entrenched. And, uh, and none these of the allegations are not of a the, like they're not of the like moment. You know, if if it was sexual misconduct, then there would be consequences. But since it's, but because Maybe. because there's like a tidal wave of that. But because they're not of that nature, I think there's not going to be anything. Even then, I, I wonder if there were serious sexual misconduct allegations, and I'm not saying there are. But yeah. you know, if there were, I, I don't know. He is so entrenched. He is the bedrock upon which the film bro online culture is built. Yeah. That, like, his movies of the 90s going on through the 2000s, that's what people like me, and I think, I, I, I don't want to sound condescending here, but, you know, less film-educated people running random blogs and stuff who make up the blogosphere, that's what they built their, that's what it came out of, their cinephilia, you know? Right. And, I haven't heard anything from a lot of those corners of the internet. Not a fucking peep on this. You know, and they're not going to because he's an idol on the wall. Yeah. And I just, it's, and he's also a super successful director. Like, he's one of those directors who sort of works within, he has a foot in the art house space and a foot in the commercial space. And somehow he's mastered both of those worlds. And it just, it makes him commercially untouchable and culturally untouchable. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is it's scary that we've made anyone that, you know? Mm-hmm. We should be able to praise the people whose work we love, but we should also, if they severely disappoint us in their personal lives or in what they do on a film set, we should be able to take them off that pedestal. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people who might have been put too high for that to, to be touched, and that is a scary thing to me. Yeah. I think it's it's also just part of, like, as you, you were kind of like that hero worship component it's part of this whole cultural obsession we have, and I think we've had for a while, about specifically that, like, the sort of the mean artist, the, like, artist that's, like, like uncompromising, is like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get my shot or to write my whatever, like, to do my thing and, and like, fuck everybody else that gets in the way because I'm always right and people are going to get hurt and, 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 and fucking, and, and they're going to get hurt physically and emotionally and psychologically by the things I do, but I'm going to produce fucking art from it. We have such a fucking problem in our culture with worshipping and obsessing over those sorts of figures, both in, in life and in, and, like, represented fictionally, and I'm fucking tired of that. Because you do not have to be a piece of shit to make good art. You no. never have. And it's never, it's never been a productive part of the artistic process or the creative process. It's never been a boon. It's always been a negative. It's always been a drawback. And if those people could move past that part of their personality and be compassionate and empathetic and decent fucking human people, the humans for once, maybe their movies would be better. Because it's like, Quentin Tarantino's movies are interesting, but they're far from perfect, and I think you can see this kind of shit, and I've seen this kind of shit, represented in a lot of the philosophy in his movies that yes. I've always been disappointed by. Yes. It's like, you can move through and pass this shit, and we should not glorify those kinds of figures, because it just tells the story to, I think, particularly young men, that like that's the kind of person you have to be to be an artist. It's like, it's not. And the more we we perpetuate that cultural narrative, the more people like that we are going to produce and we're going to destroy their lives and the lives of the people around them as long as we keep on we keep up this unhealthy relationship with that archetype 
There's a film in theaters now um, by Paul Thomas Anderson called Phantom Thread right. that uh, I finally saw this week. It was the one like big 2017 movie that I, I didn't like get a screener for, so I just because it just came out too late. Um, they did have a press screening here. It wasn't the studio's fault. I, I couldn't make it, um, so I wasn't able to review it for like top ten inclusion. But I finally saw it. I think it's an amazing, wonderful, masterful film and. It's an, it was an interesting movie to see this weekend because like, I came out of the theater and like the Uma Thurman stuff was either later that night or the next day. I forget the timeline. I think it was the next morning is when that came out. And Phantom Thread, the Daniel Day-Lewis character in that, is this archetype. Right. And I think that movie, and I thought this before I saw the Uma Thurman thing, so it wasn't like informed by that. I think that movie is a savagely intelligent and funny deconstruction of that archetype in very interesting ways where it feels like Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson, who are not known to be abusive people by any means, but very exacting, you know, like precise artists, um, which theoretically there's nothing wrong with until you take it to a certain line, you right. know? Um, and I, it feels like both of them grappling with that thing inside themselves, but it also, like, I, I have seen the interpretation that the movie, like, glorifies that character or undermines the female characters, and I can understand that. It's not what I saw in the movie. I think the movie does not want you to walk away admiring the Daniel Day-Lewis character in any way, shape, or fashion. And I just, I thought it was a very interesting, smart grappling with that idea. Because I agree, it's a very unhealthy idea. And when you just romanticize it, there's something super fucked up about it. And, like, the way Phantom Thread leans into the fucked upness of it is very, very interesting to me. And I, it's just, it's on my mind. Um, and it was something I was thinking about a lot when this story came out because we process the world through art and, you know, yeah. it's just, it's, it all sucks. I, I hope there are consequences for Tarantino and the people who've been enabling that kind of behavior. If Uma Thurman has come out and said this, then if there has been other behavior like this, then I assume we are going to hear about it now because, you know, I think she's one of the more well-known people who has worked with Tarantino and certainly one of his, someone who we thought of as like a confidant. And, and yeah, I'm curious to see where this story goes, but yeah. it's awful. All right. You want to move into frivolous stuff? Let's talk about something utterly pointless. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah. Pointless, but it looks fun. Yes. It got a trailer. I'm excited. It reminded me that I really like Ant-Man. Ant- Ant-Man's a good movie. It's a, it's a fine film and this looks like a much more confident like, big-scale version of that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it feels like Peyton Reed, you know, basically was hired to make Edgar Wright's movie and made it his own enough, but now gets to do his own thing, and Evangeline Lilly gets to be the Wasp, yeah. and we, we all know she's a movie star. She just has hit some projects that haven't fully allowed her to be that, like the love triangle in the Hobbit movies or something. <laughs> right, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm just... She looks so awesome in this film. I, I love the costume. I love that she gets to be a superhero. I love the interplay between her and Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas. Yes, I yeah. love the whole thing with him shrinking down the entire building and making it like a rollaway. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it, like it, the trailer sort of reminded me of Thor two in a lot of ways of that sort of like the playfulness with the mechanics of the world in the like the growing and the shrinking stuff. And yeah, and the other thing that the trailer did remind me of is how fucking great Michael Douglas is in the first movie and and just. The end of the trailer with Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas, and, and Michael Douglas, the sort of they're, they're talking about the new features that the Wasp has on her costume and that, that the Ant Man does not have. Yes, I like it was just like it's a very warm, happy movie, and and we need warm, happy movies right now. And I just like my brother said this to me when we saw the trailer. He said, 
you know, Marvel has never really, like, done a sidekick movie. Like, yeah. we have, obviously, Avengers films where we have a billion heroes in the movie. But, like, you know, a good old just, like, you know, two people with similar superpowers teaming up. We haven't done a ton of that. Yeah. This looks like a very fun version of it. And I love that it's Ant-Man and the Wasp. And she's got the co-billing with him. Yeah. And it just looks great. Like, Marvel, I think, is having a moment. Mm-hmm. I think they were having it last year. I think they're having it this year. You know, Black Panther is on the horizon. Oh man! The oh, the pictures out of that premiere. Yeah, that was the best fashion at any movie premiere ever. Yeah, one and everyone loves the movie. Cannot wait for that. Cannot wait for Avengers: Infinity War. Fucking Ant Man. It's all great. Yeah, they're having a moment. Yep. It's good. They're they're one of the nice things in the world right now. Yeah, it's like we need we need fun, happy, frivolous movies, and it looks like Ant Man uh, the Wasp will be that. Yes, and especially now that they're starting to use their powers actively for good, with like you know making a major you know black superhero movie, yeah. which we have had before, as people were noting, like people saying that this is the first ever black superhero movie is not true. There's no. three Blade movies, and there's also Steel with Shaquille yes. O'Neal. How could anyone ever forget yes. that? But certainly, like for this era in this month. Model, you know, doing yeah, that. the modern superhero movie, yeah, and Iron Man, yes, and you know, having at least a female superhero co-leading Ant Man, and we know Captain Marvel's on the way, so you know, maybe hopefully a more diverse future for Marvel as well. Yep. It's a cool moment. Uh, let's see, Anthem, which we talked about last week. There was the Kotaku story. It uh, EA did come out and say something about that story, basically, and that they confirmed that the game is delayed to 2019. Uh, yeah. Again, is it a delay if no one believed you were coming out in the first place? I don't know. Yeah. But it will come out or not. Yeah. Uh, like, I was, who knows if it will come out in 2019? But yes. it's it's a far more realistic goal than the, the 2018 objective they set for themselves at last year's E3. Speaking of video game release dates, Red Dead Redemption 2 has been dated for October 26th of this year. And I was really confused at first when I saw the story saying Red Dead delayed. And I'm like, oh, it got pushed to next year. No, it got pushed to October. And I had to read the story to be like, oh, right. Rockstar said this was a spring game. Yeah, because it was originally. So if it does hit this date, it will be basically like within the window of one year from which it was originally supposed to come out. It was originally supposed to come out fall last year. Then they pushed it back to sometime in spring of this year, the impending spring. And then now they're saying, now it's October. Now it's yeah. October of this year. This is the first time we've had a concrete date, so they yeah. have some confidence in this. I really don't understand why Rockstar announced the last year thing ever. Like, no one believed it was coming out last year. Yeah. No one, I think, believed it was coming out this spring, especially once we got to fucking February and there was no gameplay footage. Uh-huh. I still think if this is an October game and we've seen like 90 seconds of footage, none of it actual gameplay. I'm curious if it can actually hit that date. I we'll see. I think I think I think it's going to make it this year. I would be surprised if it slipped into 2019. Sure. Yeah. I, I think it hits this year. I think it probably hits a similar scenario to GTA 5 where they're able to cook the single player all the way and they hold off multiplayer for a while. Sure, yeah. Or actually, you know what? Fuck it. Maybe they cook multiplayer all the way because that's their bread and butter now and they just throw out the story. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah, it'll probably come out. Uh, I would be a little surprised if it actually hits on that exact date. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah, it might have one of those little tiny baby delays of like yes. a week or two that we get it, sometimes. It feels like, though, they probably pushed this to the last possible week they felt they could put it out before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Because they clearly wanted in stores for that. But, yeah, I mean, Red Dead 2 as the, the big game of the fall, that plants a flag that a lot of other people are going to have to think around. Because... Yeah. You do not want to compete with Rockstar. No. They have all the money in the world in video games. Like, if for some reason Ubisoft does have an Assassin's Creed to come out this year, 
I would seriously rethink about their normal release strategy, which would be that week. Yeah, you know? so all probably that exact day. <laughs> yes, like I don't think you want it coming out then at no. all. Even even if I were Call of Duty, I'd be a little afraid. That's like the only series that should scare Call of Duty is Rockstar. Yeah, it's like Rockstar games are this this slumbering bear of the industry of just they only come out once like every five or six fucking years. But when they do, it's like fucking like it they sell like 20 million fucking copies you know and just like and i mean gta 5 did so much more than anything else they'd ever done yeah jesus christ again it's the avatar of video games it sold more than anything but no one talks it's about like, it anymore. it's still in the top 10 like best sold like best selling games of every month like it yeah. still is it's like it, it you can fucking rely on it yes and I, you know, I don't think Red Dead has that level of mass appeal, but I also think we're in a very different moment for video games than we were in 2013 to some degree. Yeah. And I'm really curious what heights Red Dead 2 can rise to. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I am intensely curious about Red Dead Redemption 2, like for it being the first game Rockstar game since GTA 5, because like. It, because I made the joke about like the slumbering beast that wakes every five years, but like that's not entirely true because Rockstar did put out used to put out other video games. There yes. was once upon a time Rockstar didn't just either put out Grand Theft Auto or now like Red Dead Redemption, which is basically just Grand Theft Auto in the old west. You know they they put out Rockstar Presents Table Tennis back on the Xbox 360. You know they put out like that bully game. They put out Max Payne 3 was published by them and and developed by them and LA Noir. So last generation they had other games that came out. Now it just feels like they're like yeah fuck it. Like GTA what? 5 makes. So much money. They don't need to put out another no. video game. They're just doing it because it's like, I mean, fuck it. It's, what, it's like, it's our, technically our job. We might as well make one, right, guys? Yes. At some point, the well has to dry up for GTA Five. No. Yeah, no. Uh, it'll be interesting. I do think it's one of the most fascinating games to watch this year. Yeah. I still, as I've said, I'm wary in that we've seen not a fucking second of this game it's actual like well, I mean, being it, yeah i mean it, we had like out of context story trailer but that yeah. was like was definitely in game like gameplay stuff like we didn't have okay. like shooty shooty gameplay that much yeah though. i but like i if as i've said before my test is if this just looks like gta 5 in the west i'm gonna throw something at a wall okay, yeah. because gta 5 was five years out of date when it came fucking out so like I'm just very curious about that, yeah. but we'll see. Uh, all right, another piece of video game news: Dragon Ball Fighters. We don't have exact sales figures, but Bandai Namco did announce that it shipped two million copies digitally and physically in its first week. That's the fastest-selling Dragon Ball game ever. Yeah, two million is a lot for any game. Boy, for Dragon Ball, that is nuts and awesome and crazy. And we are going to get Dragon Ball Fighters two this time next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are going to get like Dragon Ball Fighters Neo Remix or something yes. like the way that that fighting games you know have to have about five versions come out before you make the proper sequel. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like because it's not only like the best selling Dragon Ball game ever; it's like one of the best selling fighting games ever. Which is the other story. Like it's competitive. Like I think it sold more than Street Fighter Five in like the relative time period. It is also like competitive with like the NetherRealm Studios games, like Injustice and shit like that. Like it is. It is one of the best-selling fighting games, like within like you know that time frame. It's ever. a it's a full-blown phenomenon, and yeah. that's amazing. Just I you know God because we went through because Dragon Ball obviously had a really big period here in the early two thousands, but we went through a long fallow period, you know. Yeah. And if you had told me when I was playing like Super Sonic Warriors two on my DS that one day this studio would come back and make a game that would sell two million fucking copies on the PS four, yeah, in like a week, yeah, in a week, I would have been like. 
No way. Dragon Ball's dead. I love it, but it's a thing of the past. Nope. Yeah, and it's going to have, like, four, like, brand new characters, five brand new characters, I think, so. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Speaking of sales, we have a block of Nintendo news here, because Nintendo had, like, a earnings call where they revealed some things. So, going through this again with the Switch sales, which are just amazing to break down. The Nintendo Switch's lifetime sales by the end of the holiday quarter, again, we're not even a year in yet, technically, are standing at 14.86 million worldwide. For comparison, the Wii U only ever sold 13.56 million, ever. Yeah. It is outpacing all other consoles, Nintendo or otherwise, at this point. Its closest competition being the PS4. Super Mario Odyssey alone sold 9 million units since October. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe sold 7.5 million. The Wii U version only sold 8.5 million ever. Yeah. So that's fucking nuts. Breath of the Wild at 6.7 million, which is comparable to the highest selling Zelda games ever. Uh, Ocarina of Time is still the highest there, but it could easily surpass it at some point. Uh, just, just nuts, nuts. I, yeah. I think we're still, because it's so fresh, it is hard to fully grasp what this could mean for the industry and what the fallout could be, especially because... The Switch does not feel like a flash in the pan the way the Wii did. Right, Like, even when the Wii happened, like, there was a lot of reaction in the industry to it. But by the time that reaction actually happened, it was clear the Wii was fading, you know? Yeah, and, and like, particularly, like, the main sort of element of the Wii with the motion controls was just not... Like, developers had never, even Nintendo had never, like, really made full use of it. The Switch's signs of strength are so much more numerous. Like, number one being very, very robust first- and third-party game library. You know, a lot of critically acclaimed titles, a lot of ports that are selling better than on their original consoles on the Wii or on the Switch. Um, The indie scene there is huge, and obviously that's a major sign of power in the industry right now. Like, another figure from this week is that that game Celeste that came out and everyone loved. Right. Highest sales were on the Switch. That seems to be a constant trend with indie games these days. Um, Yeah, just like all the signs are there for this to be more than a flash in the pan for Nintendo if they can keep their act together, which so far, we have no indication that they're falling down on that part of it. In fact, it once again seems like the best case scenario we talked about, you know, two years ago when we learned about this, that if they can consolidate all their development under one roof, they're going to be their best selves, and we're seeing that, which is an amazing thing. So I'm just, I am super curious um, what the reactions are going to be. Because on one level, the Switch is not as easily replicatable as something like Wii Motion Controls, you know? Right. Like, the PS4 can't just come out tomorrow with PS4 Tablet Edition. Right, yeah. You know? Um, But you could see, like, I'm wondering what third parties are going to start doing with their major cross-platform games because it's not going to be good business to just ignore the Switch at a certain point, you know? But then then also it is of, like, the the specifications are such that for some games it would be really difficult support like like depending on what your game is like i suspect monster hunter world for example based on what i played in the demo i would i would guess that that would be a hard game to move to the switch because of the ai and the destructible environments which are critical to that game are cpu intensive in such a way that like it's not like not everything is downgradable the way that like a doom or skyrim is totally but that means i wonder where it's going to go because you also just like i said there's going to be a point where If your cross-platform thoughts pre-Switch were Xbox One and PS4, and now it's like, well, clearly Switch is above Xbox One. Yeah. You know, PS4 is on comparable footing, and PS4 has had a head start and all that. Yeah, I mean, PS4 has like 7 million plus comps. 70 million million plus. Yeah, so that's the... But 
if you want that multi-platform support, Switch is at least going to have to be on your radar. And those decisions about, like, how are we making games? Do we make other kinds of games that could just be for Switch? They, they obviously are going to have to be of a certain level of quality for the audience to come to them because... You know, we're we're we never even got to the stage of like Batman Arkham City Armored Edition for this one. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. we skipped over that. So all of that is just it's very very interesting to me. And yeah, obviously, like Assassin's Creed Origins could never run on the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into your game development, you might want it on the super hot new thing. Yeah. So I'm just curious where this leads us, and I don't think there are any answers. It's going to develop organically. Yeah. But I'm I'm fascinated. Yeah, it does make one, like, because it, it does seem like there is this weird pathway that is, like, what... You remember how, like, back in the day with handhelds and consoles, there's that, like, we have the console version of the game, and then, like, some weird B-team makes this, like, <laughs> weird handheld approximation of, like, this is, like, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater on the Game Boy Advance! Does it have, like, anything to do with the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater on the PlayStation, other than they, they both have Tony Hawk and they're about skating? Not really, but... Yeah, and, and like, I brand them the same way. Yes, and, and, although that was a period also where sometimes the better version would be the handheld. Oh, it could absolutely because they were just different games. Yeah, like, they it was just, just like games. they had nothing to do with each other, quality or otherwise. Like I remember the original Harry Potter games on like Game Boy Color were just straight up like Final Fantasy style RPGs. Yeah, I think I had one of those. They were really good. Like they were just good handheld RPGs, and like the console ones sucked. So it was an interesting trend. But yes. I don't know if the industry would be able to accommodate that now yeah, for a number weird. of reasons, but yeah. But it's a fun idea of, like, yes. if we go back to those weird days of, of, like, with this new sort of, like, pseudo-handheld. Indeed. Uh, all right, other Nintendo news. They announced that their online service, which is still sparse on details, is launching this September. We shall right. see. It's, it's, it is kind of an amazing thing how well the Switch is doing and how much the people who own it love it. And this is still on the horizon. Like, yeah. it doesn't, honestly... It doesn't feel like we're missing much. The only significant thing for me is like no virtual console, right. which this might be the thing that supplements that. Um, but I don't like the the because there are online games on the Switch and they work fine. Like you you can't do voice chat through the system. You got to go use Skype or something. But we're used to that if we've played Nintendo. It's, <laughs> it's fine and it's not a system where people are playing super heavily online games. So I don't know. It's this is going to be a very interesting test for Nintendo this year. Yeah. The September window also points to they're pretty obviously going to have to have a game to launch with this. Right. I would not be surprised if Smash Bros. in one form or another is the big holiday game for Nintendo this year. Which, yeah. if it is, that's the game that can go toe-to-toe with Red Dead. <laughs> sure, it's like yeah. Smash Bros. for Nintendo. I mean, there's no overlap in the audiences. Yeah. To, well, there isn't in the audiences, but not in the systems. But, yeah, like, Smash Bros. is a fucking behemoth. What if they put John Marston as the new character in Super Smash Bros.? They port the, the Wii U Smash Bros., and they're like, we need some new shit. Let's get that John Marston in there. What if Rockstar's like, you know, I'm sorry, Nintendo. We can't get Red Dead 2 on the Switch. But we got this for you. Yeah. John Marston and his, like, critical move is he just walks out and, like, gets shot. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's like, he has a whole lasso move. You can just drag people around. Yes. You know. Tie them on the train tracks. You also can get uh, Trevor from GTA yes. Five, and he just curb stomps Mario. It's very violent. You know, I mean, lest we forget, Sn- Solid Snake is in Super Smash Bros. Brawl. Yeah. Weirder things have happened. It's, this is very true. Yes. yes. The, the um, thing with the Nintendo Online I am most curious about is what is people's reaction going to be when 
one day they can just play online multiplayer on their Switch for free, and the next day they can't. Like, that has always been, especially because it's been so long. Yep. With, like, the original projected window of it was, like, originally going to be, like, seemed like it was going to be, like, six months or something. And then now it's, like, it's been, like, a year and a half. Like, that's 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 interesting to me. I have no idea how normal people I, are going to respond to that. Yes, and I wouldn't even be surprised if they wind up splitting those off in that, like... It winds up being like a PS3 era situation where sure. maybe online stays free for most things, but like they add the game library and cloud saves and like a bunch of premium features to that. And even then, they're they're talking about it being like a twenty dollar a year thing, not a sixty dollar a year. Yeah. If it's a sixty dollar a year thing, look, that's utter horseshit on PlayStation and Xbox. Yeah. And it is consumer hostile trickery. But like you could not support three systems doing that, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it is going to be interesting, but again, it just it speaks to how well all the other things are going for them. That this this should be like an Achilles heel, yeah. and it's not, and that's hilarious to me. Uh, they announced that there's a Mario Kart iOS game coming, or and Android smartphone. Yeah. It's going to be called Mario Kart Tour. We know nothing else. I assume it's going to be like a free running game with the need to tilt it. But yeah, who knows? You, you pay a billion dollars to maybe get like a rare Mario Kart. Yes. Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, and. Rant time. I'm going to put my rant hat on. The rant hat never, they, it never comes off, Jonathan. All right. Not from where I sit. The Mario Illumination movie is official. <laughs> the, the Super Mario Bros. movie made by Illumination Entertainment. Purveyors of such fine entertainment as Despicable Me 2, Minions, and Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. The one <laughs> where they advertised a movie about saving the trees by having a deal with fucking Nissan. Yep. Yes, they will be making it. It will be produced by Chris Melodondri, who is the producer of all the Illumination stuff. He's like their John Lasseter or something. And Shigeru Miyamoto, which is like the one sign of hope, is that Miyamoto is a producer, like not executive producer, producer, which indicates some level of hands-on-ness. And Shigeru Miyamoto, as we know, is a pretty hands-on person when he involves himself in a project. That said, Hollywood. I mean, he's also not a movie maker, either. right? That's what I was saying. Hollywood is also a nefarious and tricky place. Yeah, and I don't know what influence he would have. You know, I am not opposed completely to the idea of a Super Mario Bros. movie. I think there are ways you could have fun with it. I think I would be much more enthused if this was a Japanese animation company making it because they tend to know what the fuck they're doing. Right, yeah. Uh, not the people who made a film that I was reading over my review today of the Lorax. Uh, actually, I was looking to see if I could find a certain line of bad dialogue, so I googled the words, the Lorax bad dialogue, and the fourth result was my review of the film. <laughs> Great. Yes, and my review, uh, at one point I called it in all italics, an affront to art itself. Like, a, a, No, I think it was an affront to the concept of art itself, was my review of the Lorax, which I gave an F+. Um, Back when I gave ratings. Yeah. I feel like that's like like you could write the same sentence in a review for capitalism, which is very appropriate. Yes, I hate these movies. Despicable Me 1 was good. 2 made me want to kill myself. The Minions trailers made me want to kill myself. They've got that fucking Grinch movie with Benedict Cumberbatch coming out. That's going <laughs> to suck. I didn't even know that that That's was happened. They're also making another Cat in the Hat movie because Mike Myers didn't beat that one to the ground enough. So we got to do that again. So they I, just have the rights to all the Doctor Who Seuss stuff? They do. Um, well, where's, where's my like R-rated super gritty hop on pop movie? You know? <laughs> Or like the what's like the butter side up wars or whatever that one is called. Yes, I think it should be Hop on Pop starring Will Smith. You are not gonna hop on pop today. Yes. 
Anyway, it can be for Netflix. It can be the sequel to Bright. Yes. No, Bright I... to hop on that pop. <laughs> Look, I, I have no faith in Hollywood in general. If the Super Mario Bros. movie had, like, gone to Pixar or something... I mean, I'd be terrified because Mario would then belong to Disney, but at least they know how to make a movie that doesn't make you want to kill yourself. Illumination is bottom-of-the-barrel bullshit, and I hate them, and Mario is my baby. Don't hurt my baby. He's all of our baby. Yeah. We well, love Mario. I, I, I like Mario. I wouldn't call Mario my baby. Sonic is my baby. Um, I have a couple of important questions for you, Jonathan, okay. about this movie. The most important top question, do you think John Leguizamo reprises his role as Luigi from the the past Super Mario Brothers movie? If you're going to do it, do it. Like, yes. lean into it, yes. If Luigi is voiced, it should be John Leguizamo. He is already, we know, is a talented voice actor from his role in the Ice Age films. Sure, yeah. Right? He can he can do it. He should just do it as the voice of his character in Ice Age, uh, Sid the Sloth. Just right, do yes. it like that. And it would be great. But yes, I think if look if you have access to John Leguizamo, he's a national treasure. Use him. Okay. He is not the problem with that Mario no. movie. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I'm saying because I like John Leguizamo. Generally yes. speaking. Okay. So pursuant to that question, then do you think does Mario talk? Does he have yes. like dialogue in this movie? Yes, and I think they're going to stunt cast it. You know, we're getting Ryan Reynolds as Pikachu, which is going to be traumatic enough. And I like Ryan Reynolds. I just don't want to hear Deadpool talking yeah. out of, you know, my my favorite little cartoon buddy. Um, I still refuse that that movie is ever going to get made. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I Either they're going to go the Danny DeVito route, like they did with the Lorax, and it will be Danny DeVito or a Danny DeVito type. Which I don't know what the Danny DeVito type is, but Bob Hoskins sadly is dead. Yeah. Who did Mario in the movie, so we don't get Bob Hoskins. Or they're going to go like Hugh Jackman is Mario or something. Or just something crazy where it's like an actor we all like but who shouldn't be voicing Mario. I don't know. Or hey, they could really just kick us all in the balls, get a real Italian and make it Roberto Benigni. Sure. And really just, just make us all commit mass suicide. So, so, but like, so do you think that there's effectively a 0% chance that Mario does have dialogue but is still voiced by Charles Martinet, the voice from the games? No, I don't think Charles Martinet voices him. Okay. Because that's not how they do things in Hollywood. Like, they don't... Yes, they're going to stunt cast it. That's yeah. that's just been the rules since the 90s. That's how they do it. Ever since Robin Williams, God rest his soul, did the genie. That's how we do things, you know? Yep. Um, and there's never been a, a movie that's really challenged that paradigm. Even films I really love where the stunt casting... Or it's not stunt casting. They've just cast Hollywood actors and they do a, a good job. That happens all the time. But... Even then, like they don't go out. Like they don't. Troy Baker doesn't do voices for these. Like they're right. very insular. They hire from within Hollywood, not without. So yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I basically agree with all those conclusions. Okay. Next question. Do you think that either a the movie is set entirely within the Mario universe and its adventures in the Mushroom Kingdom or something like that, or b Mario and pals leave the Mario universe and in, go into the real world, either represented digitally or live action, one or the other, and that is the plot of the movie, as in every fucking animated, like, Hollywood 3D animated movie based on a beloved property okay. ever for whatever reason. So the, so the question is, is this, is this going to be Smurfs or Smurfs 2, or is it going to be Smurfs The Lost Village, where they went back and just did Smurfs fully animated and had them within their own village? And, and that's the one they did last year. Yeah. Okay. I think... I didn't even know they made a, they did did a the, third Swiss movie. They did do that. They did those first two where it was Neil Patrick Harris was the human. 
And then they did a third one where they just, it was like, not even in the same continuity, where it was just an animated Smurfs movie. And it actually seemed like people liked that one more, for whatever it's worth. Well, I mean, of course they'd like yes. it more. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like, I want to be cynical and say it will be that, and like, they'll be having a party with Neil Patrick Harris and stuff, and it'll be just weird. Illumination, to their credit, I guess, has never done something like that. Yet. Yeah, yet. Like... You know, the Lorax, for all its sins, was not a live-action animated hybrid. They're not doing that with their Grinch thing. The Despicable Me movies are all animated. I think it'll stay in its fantasy universe, but I don't know. I, you know... <sighs> Who voices Bowser? I don't know. Does, does anybody... Does Bowser just voice Bowser? Do they have no, to no, no. They're going to have to stunt cast Bowser. Oh, oh. You, I thought you meant in the games. Oh, no, no, no. In the, in the movie, yeah, yeah. Who voices Bowser in real life? Fuck. Uh, I would like Idris Elba to do it, but that's not who they're going to get. But that would <laughs> that'd be, be so great. That'd be, I want a suave, sexy Bowser and have him being like the white wedding suit from Super Mario Odyssey. This is We're going to have to play this game in a future episode of Cast the Mario Movie now that yeah. we've opened this can of worms. We'll have to, to get to figure out all our choices off the air, but yes, yes. But that's that's my that's my dream casting. That's not who it's going to be, but that's my no. dream casting. Uh, I mean, who does Dwayne the Rock Johnson voice in this film? Uh, I think he. If they do the Mario goes to the real world, he's the Neil Patrick Harris. Yes, I think that's absolutely. They would get the Rock for it. Yeah, fresh off of Jumanji has almost reached a billion dollars. You don't know that. No one's talking about it. Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle is almost at a billion dollars worldwide, and and we have not uh, uh, like. Absorbed that fact as a culture, but it will be the bedrock upon which we build our new civilization after this one's yes. done. Like, like we've we've set the first brick in place when the Rock becomes the dictator of the new human race. It's better than what we have now. Um, I, I would. I am one hundred percent willing for it, man. I will. I will sign away democracy to you, Mister Dwayne the Rock Johnson, as long as you are always referred to as Mister Dwayne the Rock Johnson. We're all going to have the capacity as Lord President, Dictator of the Earth. We're all going to have to work out a lot more, and we're all going to have to eat a lot more protein. Sounds but, great. You know, we'll be okay. Yes, he would get his. He would get the life expectancy yeah, rate up. I desperately want to smell what the Rock is cooking. Alright, that's probably enough for... Did you have any other Mario questions? Um, do you think this movie's going to be good? No! <laughs> God, no! Yeah. No, not, no, like, no. The only thing is that the proximity of Shigeru Miyamoto to it is the only thing that I would view as a possible sign of hope, and it's not much. So, you know, because Miyamoto's a genius, but as you say, he's not a filmmaker, and also, you know... Let's put it this way. Hollywood doesn't listen to foreigners much. Sure, yeah. Especially when they're adapting their beloved properties. Yeah. Yeah, no. I don't think Nintendo knows what they've gotten themselves into on this one. Super Bowl. Uh, it's still going on. We don't know who's won. I think the Eagles were ahead last time I checked. But the Patriots tend to crush people's dreams. So, who knows? Tom Brady may have deflated like 100 footballs by now. And we it's don't know. It's entirely possible. We're not checking the news. Football jacks. If you're a Patriots fan... We don't actually care. You, don't, so, you yeah. don't have to tweet at us. Yeah. We don't. We love that you care. We don't. All right? Yes. But we do care about the movie trailers that come out during the Super Bowl. Well, the, the trailer, quote unquote. Yes. It, TV, well, what, TV spots. What, you, what they do now, it seems like, is they'll release like a 30 second spot and then at the same time put on YouTube the full three minute trailer. Right. So I never see the 30 second spots. Yeah. Um, let's start with the big one, which is Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, got a 45-second slot during the Super Bowl, and the full trailer will be tomorrow morning, so we won't be able to talk about the full thing until next week. But we did get 45 seconds of footage. This is a real movie. It is coming out. That was, I think, the biggest kind of question at this point, because yeah. it's been a clusterfuck behind the scenes. But it exists. Um, 
good things in the teaser, bad things in the teaser. You know, like I, I want to bow down to our our new suave overlord Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian. That is yeah. just an awesome shot. He's got the best facial hair. He could just be Billy D. Williams' son or like a clone of young Billy D. Williams. It's it's just he looks such the part in that yeah. moment, and I am so psyched for that. Uh, Woody Harrelson in a Star Wars movie I am all up here for that Sure Absolutely yeah. um, Han Solo was not in the Han Solo a Star Wars movie trailer You saw a shot of him in jail or something I don't know And he yeah. kind of almost looked up behind his hair Yes So we'll see about that um, It's interesting I, The thing that kind of hit me with this Is that even though this is another Star Wars movie That cinematographically looks very nice This one's shot by Bradford Young Wonderful up and coming not up and coming. He's arrived. He's a great cinematographer. He, I think he's the guy who shot Arrival a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, just great cinematographer. Shot Selma, I know, um, for Ava DuVernay. Um, great cinematographer. I can see his hand in this a little bit. There's some striking shots, like the, the Star Destroyer coming out of the, the like cloud dust belt thing. Yeah. was kind of neat. But at the same time, this is the fourth, right? Fourth Disney Star Wars movie mm-hmm. with the exact same production design. The exact same color scheme. I thought at first it was the same stock. This one might be shot digitally from what I could tell. I, I, it's hard to tell from like a low-res streaming trailer. Um, but it didn't look like 35mm this time to me. But like, yeah, it is the fourth movie just doing the original trilogy aesthetic. The Last Jedi did break out of that in some notable areas like on the planet Crate or in Snoke's throne room. So there was a lot of cool visual variants there. But in general, this is the fourth Star Wars in a movie in a row that looks like a very, very, very narrow definition of what Star Wars is. And it just kind of bores me. Yeah, it, it is especially when, like, doing the rewatching the prequels project and yes. then, like, and this being, as you said, it's the fourth fucking time we've been through this. Like, it's, it's exhausting. It's so exhausting just being like. And because it also just feels like it's the same fucking thing. Like, regardless of the quality of the ultimate movie, I feel like we have now been, this is the fourth time we've gotten, like, the first trailer slash teaser trailer for a new Star Wars movie. And I feel like they're all the exact same. Like, like they they look the same. They are trading on this. They, they use nostalgia in the exact same ways. It's just like, yeah, that Star, that Star Destroyer shot coming out of the fog is really cool. But I feel like there is a version of that shot in all of these trailers that's like, thing you know from Star Wars from old Star Wars movies you like as kid but now like rendered in like high res super new like effects graphics and and shot in a way that would not have been possible on old technology it's like like with whether it's the Death Star whether it's like AT-ATs whether it's an X-Wing shot or it's this it's like they're all they're all trading on the same fucking thing and it's like you can't cash that chip in four times you can't do that. You can't make one of these movies every year and have it do the same fucking thing each time. Like, like I wasn't even that interested in it when you did it the first time. It's like I'm. It feels super played out to me. Yeah, I'm so curious how this movie is going to do because they're also. I do not understand their business strategy of doing this mid-May or end of May. It's Memorial Day because they all Disney as a company already has Avengers: Infinity War that same month, right? They have other things coming, you know, they have A Wrinkle in Time this March, they have other things, they have Ant-Man the following month, like, they have plenty of fucking movies. Um, They don't have as busy a fall calendar, so I don't know why this isn't just another December one. Um, You know, Deadpool 2 is a week before this, which I think there's probably going to be a lot more excitement about that, just because it's still a fresher thing. Yeah. It's more different, we haven't seen it a million times. I I don't know, I, I, you know, The Last Jedi, we love it. Yeah. A lot of... Smart people love it. Uh, no, no offense. Um, but 
like clearly I think fandom part of it I think is just the fatigue of Star Wars is setting in for people yeah. that like if it's not exactly what they want there's so much less putting up with it going on so I don't know I'm really curious if if this is where the House of Cards is not going to fall down it's Star Wars but yeah. maybe takes a hit it's just yeah it just feels like I can't like like we just finished like we just like like we're not even done processing the last jedi it's not on dvd yet. yet yeah like we're like we're not over the the end of the last cycle and i just don't know if i can do it again i don't know if i can go through the same process of there being a new star wars trailer that a bunch of people get really excited about and then the movie comes out and it's okay or till it's like okay to good or rogue one is bad um and then like there are some people that like evangelize it to death and love it because it has a cool shot of darth vader in it and then like and or and then, and then like other people fucking hate it because it's a bad movie or people like it because it's a good movie and other people hate it because it's not exactly the Star Wars movie they want but either like either way it falls it is two people they're like people on two sides that like one side really likes the new Star Wars movie one side hates the Star Wars movie the internet explodes for two months and then and then it quiets down for a second, and then the cycle starts again with a new trailer for a Star Wars movie that people are very excited about, and then the movie comes out, and people are split on it, and they get angry at each other, and then the trailer comes out, and they get excited about it, and then the movie comes out, and they get angry at each other. I can't do this, Jonathan. I can't fucking do this anymore. We will have a break between Solo and Episode Nine. We will have 18 months, which is the longest gap for the Disney cycle. Those extra six months could be a nice little oasis. I just, I, is this the rest of our lives? Is yes, this, yes, is, Sean, yes. This is what we live in now. Yes. Uh, all right. Next trailer. Uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom got its second trailer. This was like a minute and a half. Controversial opinion. Okay, I did not watch it, so. It looks okay to me. Like okay. this one, I said this about the first trailer where it seemed like they were leaning into the goofy. I feel vindicated. They are totally leaning into the goofy. Like this trailer starts with like a T-Rex in a little girl's bedroom or something. Like... It's, they're going nuts. This one has a lot of interesting locations and the dinosaurs in all sorts of crazy places. And that's kind of, if you were to make a modern Jurassic Park movie, what I want. Like, we've sure. done the Steven Spielberg, the big kind of reverent sort of thing that he's very good at. We did, you know, Jurassic Park 3, which was like an okay knockoff of that. We did Jurassic World, which was a terrible knockoff of that. I'm okay with, like, like this is J.A. Bayona doing this one, who's a good director, um, hasn't really made a movie on this scale before, but no one has these days when they get one of these films, right. unless they're a woman. <laughs> so, you know, the, you have to have more criteria for that. Right. Um, but yeah, so it looks to me like he is actually trying to make his own movie. Like, visually, it does not look like a cut and paste of Spielberg Jurassic Park. It looks like, an, like it's actually the first Jurassic Park shot in widescreen, in anamorphic widescreen. Like, oh. just things like that. Like, and, and the framing of things look different. I don't know if this will be a good movie. I, like honestly, odds on probably won't. No, yeah. but if the Jurassic Park franchise tells you anything, there's one good Jurassic Park movie. Yeah, yes, and that's it. But like, it does look like he's at least trying to make a movie and not trying to put warmed up leftovers in the microwave. Okay. You know, and that's better than nothing. I would recommend watching it. I did laugh out loud a little bit at how silly it looked. But I'm also, it's a movie about fucking resurrected dinosaurs. Yeah. I'm okay with it looking silly. Yes. Also, like, 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 because this is like a direct sequel to the last one, right? So it is a movie about resurrected dinosaurs in a movie universe where this has been going on since the 90s and they still haven't figured out that they fuck it up every single time. Like, it would, like, they, 
they probably should have just rebooted Jurassic Park when they made the last movie just to like sort of like ease over some of the because actually like I don't think I ever mentioned this I ended up seeing probably like a fourth of that Jurassic World movie when I was on the cruise over Christmas break because my brother was watching it because they had these DVDs you could rent and so he was watching it and I watched little clips of it and it did not seem very good oh it's horrible what 100% felt like I like if if you know, if I was high watching that movie, I would. You could probably very easily convince me that that was literally just Jurassic Park one. That's yeah. like it's just the same movie because it's it's obviously a lot of the details are different, but it's trading on the exact same shit every single scene. That's like you guys just keep on making that first movie again, huh? Yeah, like, no, you, it's you're, you're you're really dead set on making that exact movie again. Well, it's like what, what is I said, with you? The only Jurassic Park sequel I kind of am okay with is the La- the Lost World one because it's directed by Steven Spielberg and he is at his worst still one of the best at what he does. Yeah, and two, that movie is an honest attempt to do something else with Jurassic Park. Is it a good attempt? No, but it's a pretty hard swing for the fences. It is not just. We did the first one again. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm I'm generally more interested in that. Like the the noble failure is better than the boring failure, you know? Yes, I agree. So whatever. Uh, all right. Uh, this was an interesting thing. The Clo- the Cloverfield Paradox yeah. was announced tonight in a 30-second TV spot. It is another Cloverfield movie. Uh, unlike 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is basically like a Twilight Zone episode that ends with a little Cloverfield reference. Great movie. You should see it. Yeah. Um, John Goodman, love him. Yes. Um, but this is like a direct sequel or like side story to the original Cloverfield from 10 years ago. And the interesting thing about this is it's done, they shot it, no one knew about it, and it's coming to Netflix tonight after the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. We've seen that for video games, although only really like yeah. indies. Yeah, occasionally. Yes. For a major movie like this, that is nuts. I don't understand how Netflix makes money, and I rant about this a lot, and one day I want someone to explain their business model to me because it makes no sense, but this does feel like a significant moment in the history of film distribution if this catches on at all. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. It also feels like NBC, I think, had This Is Us as their post-Super Bowl entertainment. They must be like, you fuckers. (laughs) No one's going to keep on their normal cable box to watch our show about crying Milo Ventimiglia when they could go watch a cool monster movie on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about this. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I will check it out at some point. Yeah, Clo- you know, Cloverfield is not necessarily a great movie, the original one, but it's an interesting one, and there's a lot you could do with it. Yeah, it's and, certainly one of the better found footage movies I've seen. Oh, absolutely, and I, I am curious where this one is going to go. It's got a very good cast. I know Gugu Mbatha-Ra is in it, I think I saw, and some other people, but seems neat. Um, quite an announcement, I will say. Yeah, yeah, it was cool to just like have that drop. It's like, yeah. okay, fuck, sure, yeah, yeah, I like, I like crazy shit. I yep. like when people do crazy shit like that. And the best one of all, Mission Impossible Fallout got a trailer, full two and a half. I don't know what they aired during the Super Bowl, but online they had a full like three minute trailer. Did you watch this? No, I haven't seen. Oh, that. you should have watched it. It's so good. I can't wait. This is the 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 sequel to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And for the first time, they're, they've kept the same director and some of the co-stars. Oh. So, well, I guess Simon Pegg has been in several of them now. But the female lead has never been the same. And they've kept, uh, I think her name is Rebecca Ferguson, who was so awesome in Rogue Nation. And she's in this one again. And Christopher McQuarrie is writing and directing again. And he is such a great spy action director. And, like, Rogue Nation is a movie that did well 
and was critically well received, but we've all slept on too much. It is one of the best spy movies I have ever seen. It would go toe-to-toe with some of the better James Bonds for me. It's just outstanding. Mission Impossible is a weird series in that it doesn't really feel like a coherent franchise. Yeah. But every film is, I think, decidedly better than the one before it. And that was so true. Rogue Nation is so good. And this trailer is one of the best movie trailers I have seen in years. It is so well cut. It has this great, like pop song version of the Mission Impossible theme under it. The cinematography, like, that's something I've never really noticed in a Mission Impossible movie. It's always nice, but, like, not the focus. Right. This one looks like, like, Skyfall. Like, like just a beautiful spy movie. It's got some really striking images. Um... Some really striking sets. Some of the, like, action setups in this one trailer are just, like, wild and jaw-dropping. I am very excited for this movie. These films are my jam. And... This one just looks better than all of them already. Like, and it's just, if that trend continues, it always has. I don't know why it would stop here. This one looks great. I know Tom Cruise is a weirdo in real life, but he's very good at what he does. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I love the Mission Impossible movies. I can't wait for this film. This is now my most anticipated film of the summer. I can't wait. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's so good, Sean. Yeah. Like, that's one of those that I need to catch up on Mission Impossible. I kind of, like, put that in. I get they're, like, different, but yeah. I put that in the Fast and the Furious in kind of the same box in my head. Like, yeah, yeah. one day I will watch those movies. Yes. I had no idea when that will happen. One day you I'll just, just be in this mood. And I'm like, yeah, fuck it. I'm just going to watch the Mission Impossible movies. Because I think I've only seen. I think I saw one once. And I definitely saw three because I remember three. Philip Seymour Hoffman's great in that. Yeah, yeah. Those are the only two I think I've seen. You should just watch Rogue Nation. You don't even have to see the other ones. It has no continuity. It's so good. And and, and they've built up a pretty good supporting cast. Like, Simon Pegg has been in all of them since three. He's in this new one. Um, Jeremy Renner had been in the last two. He couldn't be in this one because of Avengers. But we have Rebecca Ferguson is in there. Alec Baldwin has become kind of a recurring figure in these. And he's also a real creep in real life. But, you know... He's an interesting presence So you know They've They've got a nice cast Around Tom Cruise as well They're bringing back Michelle Monaghan For Mission Impossible 3 okay. Who's the wife Who died but didn't But did but didn't In the fourth movie Spy movie it's a, Yeah that's It's okay That's how spy movies go Anyway I'm psyched uh, And as my brother pointed out It seems like Tom Cruise Has a goal in life To make movies Titled after Bethesda games Because he did that movie Oblivion a few years ago Yeah And now he's done Mission Impossible Fallout Yeah So yeah You know I can't wait for Mission Impossible Skyrim Exactly. That one's going to be harder to to like explain away to the copyright people, but they'll figure it out. Yeah, I'm very excited for Mission Impossible: Wolfenstein 2: The New Colossus. It'll be, <laughs> I think, it'll be a good one. What if they just cast Tom Cruise as BJ Blazkowicz? It that wouldn't would work be, at all. But it'd that be would so be a funny. very different character. Weirdly, I could see that kind of working. If I'm being totally honest, I think he could pull it off. It would be a different take. I think he could do it though. You want to talk some Star Wars, Sean? Some real Star Wars? <laughs> yes. Let's talk about some actual Star Wars. Yes. Alright, so from here on out, we are going to be devoting the rest of our show to talking about Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Spoiler alert! (laughs) Anakin and Padme get married! Anakin's hand gets cut off! Yeah. Christopher Lee's cool. Oh, he's so cool. Alright, to recap the purpose of this project... I We talk about the prequels enough on this show, kind of second, third hand, like just at random intervals in other discussions, that I got to a point where I'm like, you know what... I want to revisit them. They feel relevant in this political moment. They feel relevant as foundational works for the digital era of filmmaking we live in now. They feel they're foundational works for the Star Wars hell that we have cast ourselves into. Yes, but they also are very, very, very different from Star Wars as it exists at this moment. Yes. And maybe Star Wars as it will exist for 
ever now. And I think they are worth a genuine critical reevaluation, not let's make a funny YouTube video where we laugh about Jar Jar. You know? Yeah. And well, so, that, that would be for the first movie. Now we're avoiding making a funny YouTube video making fun of the sand stuff. Yes. So we did that with episode one, The Phantom Menace. You can listen to that on episode 223 of our podcast. We've done so many more episodes in Star Wars. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, it's like catch up, George yeah. slash Disney. Yes. Uh, so we did episode one. We're going to do episode two. I think at this point we're going to do at least the whole original saga because why not? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're at least focusing on the prequels. Uh, I watched episode two, Attack of the Clones, last night. When did you watch? So did I. So last did you. Night, yeah. All right. I, I avoided the situation of being like, "Oh fuck, right, we're going to do that," and watching it an hour before recording the podcast, which is what happened with episode one. Yes. So I tweeted some thoughts on this last night while I was watching it um, because I I genuinely truly enjoy and 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 when I say love this movie, this is the hardest one for me to separate from nostalgia. Yeah. Even like and the Phantom Menace, obviously I was young, even younger, but like Attack of the Clones, I was ten. Like it was just that perfect age. I read the novelization for this movie before it came out. Sure. Yeah. Like I had all the like I had a bunch of toys from this movie. Uh, I remember my brother had a Count Dooku curved lightsaber. Yeah. I you know, know like I was super into this. It I can't separate this from like Natalie Portman in this movie is like the first woman I noticed that way. Just like I think a lot She's of... She's your Gillian Anderson. Or uh, Carrie Fisher for a lot of people from the 70s and 80s, yes, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, just So you're saying Gillian Anderson in the X-Files? Yes, that's mine. Yeah. Totally fair. I don't hear that one as much. Yeah, well, it's but no, mine. Yeah. Gillian Anderson is as somehow beautiful today as she was like 20 years ago at the yes. premiere of the X-Files. She's amazing. She is absolutely amazing. I love her. National treasure. Um, yes. Uh, Natalie Portman. So, so like that was just... There's just a lot rolling around in this movie for me because it is a... A epicenter of nostalgia But part of this project is to try to take those goggles off As much as possible The good and the bad you know. Yeah. And I was struck by how much I enjoy this movie For the world building of it For the unbelievable visuals Which I think hold up In some ways better now than they did back then in a weird way Because I, I, actually, I totally agree <laughs> Because yeah. nothing else has looked like this ever uh-huh. um, So we'll talk about that uh, I think it is. I think it's just a tremendous piece of world building, as good or better than the Phantom Menace. I think it's narratively messy, and I think we can all agree to that. Yeah. It's too long. It's got some issues here. It has middle chapter syndrome in some ways, in that the stakes don't always feel as high as they would in a first or third chapter. Like something The Empire Strikes Back very cleverly found a way to avoid. Yeah. Um, most movies fall into some of those traps. But I, I also love the characters, and I actually... This is the thing that I think is going to be the split between me and a lot of people on this movie is I actually think the acting in this movie is really good and I include Hayden Christensen in that with there are some moments where he is wooden I also think there are some moments he does not get anywhere near enough credit for um and on the whole and and the way this movie builds to I think one of the best third acts in any Star Wars film all the stuff on Geonosis is like an out of body experience it's so fucking amazing to watch I really like Attack of the Clones. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like the 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 difference here is that for me, I remember like this being the movie that like I kind of enjoyed in the theater, but it was always the movie that like in the back of my head I was like, oh, maybe this like actually isn't that great. Like kind of being bored by it, and then watching it again on DVD, I remember like I very specifically remember when I watched it again on DVD, like feeling that the movie was really boring. Um, and that's, I mean, we talked about that on this podcast. Years ago, that, that, that was my assessment of Attack of the Clones, was that it was the worst Star Wars movie because it was the most boring one. And I still would say, like, out of the original six movies, I've looked, like, 
Return of the Jedi is impossible for me to rank because it's that movie's fucking crazy. But like in putting Return of the Jedi aside, I would still say Episode Two is the weakest. But I completely rescind the boring argument. I don't think this is a boring movie. Here's my overall thesis on this film. Yeah, it is a Star Wars movie made for adults, and sure, I it's something that. I yeah. thought a lot watching it because this is the thing. All that nostalgia aside, I was enjoying Attack of the Clones on a 100% different wavelength than I did as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not 100. There's still like Mace Windu, Purple Lightsaber, Sam Jackson. I enjoy yeah. that the same way now as I did when I was yeah, a kid. That car chase at the beginning is real fucking good, huh? Yes. But like, even like the action and like the way it's all put together, I enjoy in a different way. The visuals I enjoy from more of like an art appreciation way because they're, they're so painterly in this film. Like the, effectively the sky boxes of this movie, you know? Um, but, like, the story, it is a kind of political thriller mixed with, like, a, you know, a Hemingway-esque, like, farewell to arms thing where it's, like, this, you know, calm before the storm away from the war in the countryside you get with Anakin and Padme. All the character stuff is very nuanced and cerebral, and it is not in your face obvious what Anakin is going through and what we should be taking away from it. You know, Star Wars naturally from what it is from the opening crawl on the flash gordon stuff is pulp it is big operatic space pulp and that means that it is harder to fit some of those nuanced ideas attack of the clones goes for both narratively thematically characterly character wise in this film and i think that's where some of the messy parts of attack of the clones come from but i also think it is a uniquely rewarding star wars experience to watch because i think it is asking more of the viewer and if you're on its wavelength giving more to the viewer than certain other Star Wars movies. Or it at least is giving you something very, very different than any other Star Wars film. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... I, I agree with all of that. Of that. In, in particular, like, I think... Like, for me, I'm... I think... Agree. I think, like, having rewatched it, I think Hayden Christensen is actually really good in this movie. Like, it is... In some ways, we'll get into this more. I think it's like the most authentic teenager I've maybe ever seen in a movie. Like in 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 all the messy ways that it needs to be messy and awkward and kind of embarrassing. Like I think, and I don't think that's on accident. That is one hundred percent who that it, character yes. is. There's like no way that that's on accident. I think Natalie Portman suffers more in this movie to me than she did in the last one. I think like there are scenes she's good, and there are scenes that I don't think she's good. And like some of that is the dialogue is. Like, the dialogue fluctuates between being, like, wooden in in an interesting way and then wooden in a way that's, like, this isn't landing. I think, like, there's, like, that the Anakin-Padme stuff for me is really weird in this movie. It's, like, now for me, now that my, like, new state of, like, thinking Attack of the Clones is a good movie. And that it fluctuates from scene to scene to being, like, this is good and it's, like, oh, this isn't. Like, and, and I think ultimately I wish that the Padme character, I think they don't quite sell her starting a relationship with Anakin enough. I think from Anakin's perspective, it works. From Padme's, it doesn't. There's some stuff there. There's some messy stuff of, like, scenes that need to be trimmed. It's too long in some ways. Like, like, and there's... Some of that stuff is rough. And, like, 100% is rough. And that's why I think it is an uneven movie overall. But at its core, at its, like, fundamentals as a movie, I think it is extremely successful. I think it pulls off this really interesting storytelling structure that's, like, you know, it's a parallel story that, that, like is so often done very poorly and I think here the parallel story works fucking perfectly between Obi-Wan and Anakin and I really love the way they cut between the two they always make sure that there's some sort of underlying something going on between those scenes when they cut from Obi-Wan to Anakin or back and forth there's some relation in the action or the theme that gives purpose behind those cuts that gives a coherence 
to the parallel plot structure that works really well. Um, Ewan McGregor is fucking awesome in this He's movie. He's so good. He's so fucking good. All of his detective Jedi stuff is the best. That's always the stuff in the movie I've loved. It's my it's, crack. I love it. Yeah, it's it is. I I it's because it's part of like the Jedi fantasy that like of the you know like magic space cop thing that you never really got to see. And it's more kind of like you get a little bit of it in Episode One, and here you get a different version of it where Episode One is like them trying to sort of deal with this trade dispute that goes wrong. Here, it's them, you know, Obi-Wan being a detective and Anakin being a bodyguard. So you get to see these different aspects of the Jedi experience that's really interesting. And then, for me, most importantly about this movie is what you were saying about the visual element is just stunning. It's something of that, I think, like, George Lucas has some flaws as a director, clearly and obviously behind directing for actors. But luckily... His movies are not like actor movies. They're no. not like they don't rely like they do not rely on dialogue and they do not rely on performances. Like those things help and it would be nice if those things were shored up a little bit better, but the core of all the Star Wars movies and most of George Lucas's movies is behind the the larger storytelling structure and the visual language. And and that like this movie has that in spades and it is gorgeous. It has a tremendous visual sense. It knows exactly when to do a cool wipe transition and when not to do a cool wipe transition, which is never you always do a cool wipe transition. What a hundred percent of the time. If there's one sin, one cardinal sin that the new Star Wars movies commit is that there's nowhere near enough wipe transitions. Like fucking George Lucas has got it as a director, and that's so horribly sad that that people have have assaulted and insulted him so thoroughly and constantly over the years for these movies when like no like as movies they fucking are really good like like this movie is way better directed than the majority of hollywood movies i see yeah he'll, he'll get his due yeah history will look very kindly on mr george lucas uh, I, I think the moment it's going to be a sad thing. I think the moment he passes away, yeah, the re- yeah, the reevaluation is going to happen, and it won't have happened when he was alive. But you know, I, I think hopefully he is confident enough in himself to know he has done great things for the world. Yeah. Also, like he's donating his entire fucking fortune to charity. So back off, yeah, assholes. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> he's sold, like, he sold his you know like his baby Star Wars to to the demons. In order to help actual people. Yes, like he is one of the most like philanthropic people in the history of Hollywood. On top of all the the skill yeah. and talent and all that. No, um, yeah, like let's we'll get back to. I want to talk about all the character stuff you touched upon, uh, like about Padme and about Anakin, because there's so much in this movie. I think it's a very yeah. rich movie, but I do think it's worth starting with the visuals. Yes, and yeah. ending with the visuals because. It's not a shallow thing to talk about the visuals of a film. No. Film is a visual fucking medium. If you went to a museum and said, I think this painting is beautiful, and you went on to explain why it's beautiful in tone and color and texture and composition and all those things, and then someone next to you said, that's really shallow, you'd be like, why are you in the museum? That's what we're here for. talk about the symbolism of the sunflower facing the blah. It's like... Well, I mean, yeah, that's nice, but it's like, it also, I just like the way it fucking looks, man. Yeah, or if someone was like, you you like, let's take the sunflower thing, like it's Van Gogh's sunflower, and you describe all the things you love about it, and then the guy's like, I think the sunflower had some wooden acting. You'd be like, fuck off! What does that matter? Yeah. Really, like, end of the day, what hurt you so bad that that's the thing you have to harp on? Yeah. Attack of the Clones is a stunningly beautiful movie, and I had two primary reactions watching it. One, um, this movie was so ludicrously ahead of its time in technical stuff. Like, oh, this yeah. is 
2002, this was the first uh, big-budget Hollywood movie shot on digital ever. So, like, big deal there. I mean, it would be years before that became standard in Hollywood. Like, remember... Uh, a Hollywood or a, a movie does not win the Academy Award for digital photography until Slumdog Millionaire in '09. Like we're way away from that being standard enough that they even got like Oscar nominations. Yeah, you know, like there was no digital projection at the time. Like if you saw Attack of the Clones in theaters, it was on 35. Like it was really, really ahead of its time on that level, and it visually holds up so much better than anything with digital elements or digital photography. Not just from back then, but from like. Five years ago. Yeah. You know, like, like, think about, so Doctor Who, for instance. Yes. It's the, the, like, David Tennant seasons of Doctor Who are shot on digital tape. That's like 2005. This is 2002. I understand differences in budgets. Still think of how advanced Lucas is with that digital photography and how he blends it all together. And obviously there's some CGI elements that look dated, but there's a lot where my overall reaction was that if, if this is how filmmakers used digital techniques today, I would have so much less of a problem with digital photography and projection because Lucas, like you, there is a sense of freedom to the visuals yeah. in this movie where Lucas is like, I don't have whatever shackles I perceived on film before. Like he clearly wanted to move away from that. And when he did it, there's a sense of creativity and invention to the visuals and the colors and the landscapes. Every single establishing shot in this movie is a little visual masterpiece. And like that is stunning and Movies have not, I think, taken advantage of all the tools the prequels gave this medium. But here was my second reaction. You know what has? Video games. Uh-huh. There, yeah. uh-huh. there is no Western 21st century video game market without the Star Wars prequels. Period. Like, the, uh, especially for sci-fi. Yeah. You don't get the Halo games without these. You don't get Destiny. You don't get KOTOR, obviously. You don't get Mass Effect. Yeah. You don't get so many things, sci-fi and otherwise, without the ways I think this movie showed you how to build a digital world. Like, I think the very idea of 3D skyboxes is so influenced by what Attack of the Clones does with its settings and scenarios. Like, watching this movie feels like you are watching a film version of a Mass Effect or something made today. Yeah. Not ten years before Mass Effect. Yeah, it is something that 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 was probably the most surprising part of rewatching Attack of the Clones was that how much it held up because I would I would have guessed that it, that that would have been really bad that that it was like you know I'm able to get over that stuff very easily because if you're going to watch Doctor Who from 1963 you got to be able to get over some of that stuff to be able to appreciate some of it but it, but yeah I was very much prepared going into it of like. Fuck, this is like a movie shot shot on digital with like, you know, even more so than episode one, a huge amount of CGI elements from like, what, what 2002 was mm-hmm. when this came out? Yeah. So it's like, like you know, for 2000 fucking two from like 16 years ago. God help us, 16 years ago. Um, and, and that's like, when you think about any movie from that, like, like Spider-Man is basically contemporary with this movie. The first Sam Raimi Spider-Man is around this time. Um, and like... The CGI in that movie looks like utter fucking garbage. And it's like, I'm, I can get past it because it's not that important. Everything else about the movie yeah. is great. But, but like, it's the kind of thing that if I were going to show someone who hadn't seen Sam Raimi's Spider-Man for the first time Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, I would say, like, by the way, this movie came out in 2001, very early CGI effects, you know, prepare yourself. It's like, you know, the shots of Spider-Man swinging in that movie, like, look like very early CGI. And and the thing about Attack of the Clones is that 
it it looks like a modern movie because modern movies are kind of made the way that Attack of the Clones was made in so many ways. But like you said, if you, it it has the same quality we talk about all the time on this podcast is like one of like the recurring like theses of our podcast is that any piece of art that revolutionizes something in its time has an energy and genius and creativity to it that retains through the ages. And it's yes. like I think it's a critical for me it's a critical thing that has to be true for art to be able to hold up at all if like if that was not true no piece of art would ever be able to hold up but it's like but that creativity and energy is in that piece of art and that is 100 percent true of attack of the clones it is just as true of attack of the clones as it is for like king kong you know like like it is it, it has that quality to it and it's really amazing that i think like it's something that that Attack of the Clones probably like weirdly looked kind of worse in its day than it does now because movies have moved in the direction of Attack of the Clones that we're used to movies looking like this and doing some things that Attack of the Clones does. And the fact that Attack of the Clones does it, but and does it like in a creative, unexpected way because of the time it was made, is like weirdly refreshing visually. It's a really interesting movie to watch on Blu-ray now because. You're literally just seeing on Blu-ray the master digital file. Like, they right. didn't even really have to, like, compress it because... I mean, I'm sure it's compressed, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not downsized at all because this was... I don't even know if it was finished at 2K. That might have been too high at the time. But, like, Blu-ray is 2K. This was, you know, at max that. Like, this is pretty much what they saw when they were finishing the movie. And so you're seeing the exact, basically, files that were finished... And, you know, even if, like, I think this movie would look gorgeous on 35mm. Digital movies do when they're printed on 35. But to see, like, the movie as it was, like, kind of, quote-unquote, intended, because George Lucas actually made a push at the time to get digital projection. It didn't work. Haha, <laughs> we that didn't last long. Anyway, because um, I would say... I, I I understand where George Lucas was coming from. I still wish we could have like a half and half system. Yeah. <laughs> where, you know, digital projectors over here, 35 over here, everyone can be happy, but no. Anyway, but yeah, so like it, it kind of took until the Blu-rays came out to fully see what Attack of the Clones was exactly doing with its images. And it really is a stunning thing. And I agree with what you said about that creative energy. That's the thing that I think animates Attack of the Clones most for me. Is just scene for scene, shot for shot, moment for moment, even in the most wooden pieces of dialogue. Like, let's go back to the sand scene, which yeah. I will actually defend. But let's just say, sake of argument, the sand scene. One, it's not actually all digital, like all CGI, the way people say. That set is very physical and tangible. And all the sets in this movie, I think, are really good and beautiful and well built, you yeah. know? Um, but you have this whole Naboo landscape. However it's done, it is some crazy trickery because nowhere on earth looks like that place. But they've done it. It's gorgeous. The costume... And Natalie Portman's costumes in this movie are amazing. Yeah. You know, all the costumes are great. It's just the color scheme and everything. So even in a moment like that, I think there are, there are true visual inspiration going on. Or an even better example might be like the one where Anakin confesses his love to Padme at night. The fireplace sort of scene. That's, I think, maybe the most wooden dialogue in the whole movie. Yeah. But yeah. the lighting of that scene, the way it's framed and shot and moved around, it's more traditional, but it is still... It is so animated by, I think, that underlying passion of using these new tools. And yeah, comparing it to stuff at the time is fascinating. Like, all the stuff on Geonosis, the amount of assets on screen. Like, the amount of characters in the stands, in the in the... Battle or in yeah. the in the uh, gladiator sequence, and then the amount of like Jedi and droids fighting, and then when they escape all of that, and it somehow gets even bigger when you're out on the planet in the first big battle of the Clone Wars. 
it's nuts how much is going on. What my mind went to was Lord of the Rings, uh-huh. which like Weta and ILM at this time were in some sort of crazy arms race of who could in, like innovate the most. But I've got to get it to ILM here because Lord of the Rings largely relies on physical, practical effects augmented by CGI. Yeah. Like, you know, you will have in Helm's Deep, mostly it's close-ups on people in costume and makeup. And then you'll zoom back and it's at, you know, kind of pretty fixed angles of how you're going to have those it's called massive is the system that builds all those characters out all those like cgi battle people but it doesn't have the amount of like life that ilm puts into attack of the clones most of it is like them standing in formation and then you have like a couple of like shots of them like going up the ladders and helps deepen that kind of stuff like there's some shots of more activity but i agree like because because two towers is the one that's most contemporary like that there's way more activity going on with those background elements in Attack of the Clones than in Two Towers. Yeah, and I'm not even saying one is necessarily better than the other, but there is just like, you know, but Lord of the Rings is supposed to be a visually more sober, down-to-earth, like, this is our planet with fantasy on it. Star Wars is, you know, pure, undiluted space fantasy. Yeah, like, like Earth doesn't even exist in the Star Wars universe as far as we understand it. Right, exactly, and so... If you know if if you're George Lucas and you really want to portray this kind of alien you know worlds and completely new environments and make us feel like we are not home, that's the kind of stuff and the kind of visual invention you need. And he pulls it off so beautifully here. All that Geonosis stuff at the end. Also, again, that planet is like every space planet in a video game now. Yeah, exactly to a T. Like you travel to like twenty of them in Mass Effect One alone. And it just, it really is jaw-dropping how much is going on, how fluid it is, how much they are able to do with cinematography uh, within that. Like, the camera gets to actually move and have interesting compositions, and it doesn't feel limited by the effects for the most part. All of that's amazing. Like, I actually was going through the Oscar nominations from this year to see what this movie got, uh, and the only thing was visual effects. Hmm. Didn't get sound. Didn't get oh, didn't get production design, didn't get costume design, did not get cinematography, which I understand, except that I think in retrospect, this is such an important movie in the history of cinematography that it obviously should have gotten it that year. Right, yeah. Like and all those other awards, like What if, about score? Like No. This because this might be my favorite Star Wars score. It's I, amazing. I love the score of this movie so much. To be fair, John Williams did have that was Catch Me If You Can that year, and that's what he got nominated for. Okay. And that's a great John Williams score. So I understand why that one missed out. Uh, although that's also the year that's the only Lord of the Rings movie that didn't make it in. That was a weird year for score. Huh. But yeah. And and this one lost visual effects to Two Towers, which is fine. Two Towers is Gollum, so like Yeah, it's like if you're gonna do if it's gonna lose to something, Two Towers is the movie you should lose to. Yes, but like, n- yeah. none of the prequels won a visual effects award like Hollywood just like because the critics were and and fans were so dismissive like the Oscars just ignored them and it's weird especially in a world where Suicide Squad won an Oscar for makeup right yeah for which it was patently yeah. undeserving because it, cause it isn't just the digital stuff because you kind of like alluded to this when you, you yeah, talked yeah. about the physical sets but it is like everything about the production design exactly like with episode one like everything we talked about with the world building and production elements which include physical and digital of episode one continue in spades for episode two like it's it is it, it's the kind of thing that I think is much easier to sort of like appreciate more like intellectually when you're older than when you're a kid like you don't even like uh, like what's editing what's production design like I get like you know technically someone had to make those costumes but you don't actually appreciate that someone made those costumes it's like part of the experience for me of watching a movie now is like marveling at the production of it particularly if it's a big budget movie it's like holy fucking shit the the 
the costume work and the designs and, and the sound design and like the ingenuity in the sound design and the score and everything about the production of this movie is just astounding to me. Yes. In a way that's like, is the kind of thing that even if you don't, if you, you know, you're so put off by the style, the dialogue and the acting and all that stuff that you still don't like this movie, you have to, you have to recognize it for its production design and cinematography. Yes. I think it's criminal not to. Yes. Uh, I'm going to get back to John Williams in a second because I don't want to forget our good friend John Williams. Yes. Yeah. He deserves attention in all of these podcasts. But getting back to those points about the visuals and stuff, uh, one thought I had off of everything you just said about like when you're a kid... The thing is, you do recognize those things when you're a kid. It's why kids love the prequels. Right. Because they are so full of things to set off your imagination. Like, they, they build these, you know, huge sprawling worlds that you can look at. And they're so good and so built, you know, lived in and, and look so gorgeous that your imagination just takes off from that incredibly rich foundation. And I think that's one of the reasons why these films, as the original Star Wars films do, uh, or and especially did to kids of the 70s, speak to children. And it's one of the things that has always annoyed me when people are like, i got to show my kids the prequels now. I'm, they're going to like them, and I hate that. It's like, well, then don't show your kids that. If that's, you're going to be a dick about it. Like, you know, yeah. like I wouldn't show my kids Barney to the Dinosaur if I was going to go, that guy was like a pedophile, you know? Like, well, why would you do that to your kids? That's yeah. horrible. I actually don't know if Barney was a pedophile, but, you know. One of them probably was one of at the some point. Like, almost there, certainly. There have been a lot of Barneys, you know. Yes. But, like, it's just a weird thing to say, especially because it's pretty obvious why kids would like these movies, I think. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I think, like, what I was, yeah, I think what I was getting to that is that there, no, yeah. you, you appreciate it in different ways based on when yes. you're a kid and you're adult. But, like, what, to that point, like, one of the things... This is true about episode one. I think I forgot to mention it, but it, like it struck me even more remarkable for this movie because of how much more complicated the story structure is. Is I haven't seen this movie since probably I was thirteen, maybe fourteen uh, at at the oldest since the last time I saw this movie. Um, and 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 for Phantom Menace, it would have been around the same time. So it's been a long time, and there have been a lot of movies because I've only I think I've only seen Phantom Menace and this movie twice. I think I. Maybe three times at the most. I've seen these a lot more. Yeah, like, yes. just because like I just never got. I kind of got more stuck into rewatching the original Star Wars movies yeah, and yeah. not these ones. Um, probably partially because of like the larger cultural discussion around these movies. Mm-hmm. But so I haven't seen these movies to death, and there are lots of movies that I've seen once or twice from around that age that I do not remember at all. Like there is not a fucking moment in Episode One, Episode Two that I forgot. Like I. If, if before I watched those movies, and I didn't realize I could have done this, I could have told you everything about those movies. I could have basically walked you through those movies from beginning to end and at least addressed probably 95% of every scene in that movie. This is like a tremendous memory retention for those movies. And that's like something that like I watched The Last Jedi like, what was it, like four months ago? I couldn't do that for that movie. Not that four weeks ago. Yeah. It, we're, oh. in, we're in January. We're, Yo, you're right. Yeah, yeah, that was December. It's been it's been a long time for I me. Know. In my you know time is relative. Yes. on the inside. But yeah, like it's been it's been several weeks since I watched the Last Jedi, and I like that movie a lot. There's a lot of that movie I would not be able to tell you about at this point because while I like that movie, like one of the things we talked about is like its story structure is incredibly ambitious and cool because it's ambitious. It's also incredibly messy. I also couldn't do that for The Force Awakens. I couldn't do that for Rogue One. Like, those are movies that are, like, I enjoy pieces of them in the moment, but, like, they have not stuck in my memory. Or taking it to maybe a different modern example, like Marvel movies. Yeah. I, I like pretty much every Marvel movie. If you ask me to walk you through the plot of most Marvel movies or describe images, I could do it for two or three of them. Like, 
It's, exactly. They're yeah. just not that kind of thing to me. And it's okay, but it also shows, like, to some degree we've settled for what we accept out of movies visually these days. Yeah. And and so, yeah, like that, it really speaks to the qualities of episode one and episode two to me that they... And then episode three, obviously, would be... Like, episode three I've seen more recently, so, like, I would be able to do it easier for that movie for different reasons. But, like, it speaks to the quality of those movies that they stick in the imagination that way. And there is... Like, weirdly enough for, like, all the people I think sometimes make fun of these movies for being confusing. For me, it's like, no. Like, they're, like, really astoundingly clear. And even though they are saying complicated things and they're dealing with complicated plots, they are not, like, structurally as simplistic as something like A New Hope is. But, like, even though they have a more complicated structure, I think it's, these movies are incredibly clear in what they're trying to do and how the action is moving. And especially for this movie having this, like, strict parallel plot structure for the entire, like, middle section of the movie, that's amazing to me that it is as clear as it is. It's, yeah, it's a very actually well-paced film overall and, and well laid out. And, yes, these, these movies are memorable. And it's, like, that's a weird word to use critically because it's a broad concept, but it actually, like, think about it. What movies do you remember? And movies you remember are ones you have strong reactions to in general, you know? Um, Like, you know, and so, like, even if you, you don't like the Star Wars prequels... Clearly, we all agree they're memorable movies because we don't shut the fuck up about them. Yeah, you know, they, they like are they always have... a part of the cultural conversation. Yes, and uh, it is it is something that I think is very powerful about these films is that they stick in your brain, which you when you see them for one reason or another. I think it is primarily that aesthetic element that helps them do that, and I think there are very good stories being told within that, and they are of a piece. But that's one of the major elements. Getting back to the aesthetics, I just while on the, the point of the cinematography being really good, a couple of compositions that stick out to me. Yeah. I mentioned every establishing shot. They're all great. The stuff on Kurosant is like, how, how, how long did it take to render that in 2002? Right, you know yeah. the, the ones when you get to Naboo, and like, I like that you see other parts of Naboo this time. Those are beautiful establishing shots. Some of the stuff near the end on Geonosis, and the, you know, the kind of rock planet, amazing. Um, the, the shot that I think is the most memorable in the film to me, and it's been used in like posters and stuff, but it is still, it struck me when I watched it last night, like I paused it and studied this shot, is after Anakin has the dream about his mother, which is not a well shot scene and should have like that's a weird thing how they chose to do that, but we'll get back to yeah. that. But the morning after, he's woken up, he's standing out on the balcony, he has his hands behind him in that kind of Jedi like meditation standing pose. Yeah. And he's just looking out, and you have two pillars, and so you've kind of split the image into thirds. Pillar here, he's a pillar in the center, pillar over here, light beyond him, really colorful, like impossibly colorful sky, really beautiful shot. There's all this these colors and textures within. I actually listened to the commentary for this scene, like the original commentary, and they're talking about how like they shot these scenes in Italy and it was raining, and you can't really tell it rained, but you can see like there's some water on the ground that actually gives these kind of reflection things. And then how Padme enters and where she stands and her costume, which is like this billowing robe and his costume, which is like the Jedi robe and all the, like all the elements of that shot. It is a perfect film composition. And there are so many of them in this movie that are just fucking striking. Yeah, like that is one I definitely noticed while watching. A couple of other ones um, is because I think there's some really great stuff on Tatooine in particular. Yeah. Um, after Anakin, there's like a succession of two shots after Anakin leaves to go find Shmi, his mom. There's that shot of him on the spear going through the desert, and the camera starting to starts behind him and then goes around to the side for a profile shot with the red 
twin sons setting and it's like a good it uses a lot of the symbolism of Tatooine that we're familiar with from episode 4 in particular I, with Luke staring at the twin sons but it has such a different like because it's you know it's blood this blood soaked sky with Anakin on this mission for revenge and like this really driving music like that image has always really stuck struck for me like I've probably seen this movie like 10 times I know these shots. I verbally just blurted out, holy shit, when I saw yeah. it last night. Yeah. That moment. It's uh, unbelievable. Yeah. I also can't believe they got that with the camera move in 2002. Uh-huh. Beyond. Yeah. Belief. It's yeah. one of those things that's like, they, it's that one of those things of watching it as someone who's older and has more experience with like film studies. It's like, you're enjoying it. up like, it's really beautiful. I was like, how the fuck did they do this shot in 2002? Like, this is awesome. Um, then the other shot, and this might be my favorite shot in the movie, and it's like... Not even like a consequential shot much in terms of the plot, but it's so evocative for me. It's like it's the shot that I would want like a poster of. Is after that, it's it's nighttime because it sort of like cuts to night, and he's standing um, talking to a Jawa over in the left third of the image, and it's like this blue night in Tatooine, and there's these the big sand crawlers that the Jawas have from that you've also seen in the original trilogy are often there in like the right third of the image, and it's a really long shot from really far away, and and it's just. It's so strikingly beautiful and it's so evocative. And it's one of those things of like, it's not a shot that's like doing this really critical plot work, but is doing so much of communicating that time has passed and that Anakin is on this mission. Like, like he's, it's not just, he's going off on the speeder and then cuts away to Obi-Wan and then cuts back and he's already in the, the Tusken Raider camp. It's no, it cuts back and he's, it's at nighttime and he's still going on his mission. Um, it's, it's a really beautiful shot. Yeah, I, what the entire that stretch of the movie, which is one of my favorite stretches, does with the iconography from A New Hope is fascinating and really, really, uh, I think it's visually striking, but also intellectually and emotionally very effective. So we'll have to talk about all of that when we get there. Um, before we forget it, because I, I don't want to get into like the text of the movie and forget about John Williams. Right. It's easy to do that. John Williams is a genius. There's no wrong answer for the best Star Wars score. If this is your vote, I totally understand. Uh, part of what strikes me about this one, and he does it in all the movies, but it is amazing what a long game he plays in the prequels with when he's going to dole out themes and when he isn't. Yeah. And Attack of the Clones is really interesting for that because there are so many places where in all these prequels you could drop in Luke's theme or Leia's theme or the Force theme or any or the Imperial March. He completely eschews it in Phantom Menace, other than little tiny quotes here and there. Here, he waits full on until you're on Tatooine uh, Anakin has killed all the Jawas, and then he comes back and says, that's the whole speech that ends with, I hate them! And that's, after that is when you get the first Imperial March. Mm-hmm. The first, like, full quote of the Imperial March in the prequels. And I think it's chilling. Like, I think it, like, goosebumps when you see that. Yeah. And then you get a full rendition of the Imperial March with the clone troopers getting into the ships in a full-on, like, quote of Triumph of the Will, the Nazi film. Yeah. Like, there's just a lot of really smart uses of the musical iconography. He does a lot of this in the sequel trilogy, too, now. He's so good at it. But, yeah, I I just... The prequels, he was on fire. Yeah, and it's something of... Like, the thing about the score of Episode 2 that is so remarkable to me is that even if, like, the dialogue and the acting in a lot of those scenes do not sell the romance between Anakin and Padme, the, the romance theme in this movie is so unbelievably good. We played it at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, it is so absurdly good that it's like it it sells it for me it does like that and like the visual language does enough to totally get past some of the issues i have with the writing and the performances that's like 
it it does it. It does it more than enough. That like like I I buy it enough for me to buy into that side of the movie, which is a phenomenal achievement for a piece of music to do. It's also I love it because it's one of the pieces of music that would play in. I think it's either Battlefront One or Battlefront Two, or it might be both of them. That's like. A really inappropriate piece of music for like a video game menu with you know it's like this game where you're like shooting people all the time and it's like always struck me this is this really beautiful eloquent piece of music that like so describes the sort of like the longing of of that kind of like adolescent uh, love or affection it's so evocative to me that's that I I always found it really tremendously funny that it was in Battlefront. But yeah. then, for me, the most, like, what really nails this score to me that makes it, I think, probably my favorite sort of single score in terms of how it's used in the, in one of the movies is that last scene where it brings in the full Imperial March for, like, an extended, like, two to three minutes of you watching Palpatine, you know, sort of, like, trying his best not to, like, sinisterly laugh in front of all these sinisters at the assemblance of this massive army that he's duped all these motherfuckers. And, and it is... That like that that you have like a little bit of it when you get those first hints of Darth Vader, but where it like truly comes in, I love that like the Imperial March coming in full force is at the assemblance of the army because that's where the Empire yep. is born. The Empire is born when the democracy chooses to give these extraordinary military powers to its democratically elected leader that creates an army that they no longer have true control over. Like, and that is the moment, like even though all the paperwork has not been filed yet, that is the moment where the Republic turns into the Empire. And so that's where you get that theme. And then it transitions into the huge sweeping love theme that's like fully crescendos um, with Anakin and Padme's wedding. And the way that those things are cut together is so tremendously powerful for me. And so much of that is like, again, it's the combination of the visual language and the music does so much in that moment that I like it, it is really incredible. I think we're spoiled by John Williams. I think it's so easy to take him for granted and what he does because he's become a genre of music unto himself. But here's the thing. No one else can do what he does. Yeah. Like, we have some composers, and actually largely I think we're in a post-John Williams moment in how film music is used, you know? Like, I just think you look at, like, the reactions to the scores for Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, and a lot of what I hear is it reuses themes too much. And it's like... Nope, that's how that score is used. Yeah. If if like I think if Star Wars and New Hope came out today, people would say, "Yeah, laying it on a little thick," because that's just not how we use music these yeah. days. It almost but, like weirdly feels like it went to video games in some yes. ways. Like video games is where it feels like the John Williams version of score is still like lives on. It absolutely does. Uh, but like what John Williams does in this very you know people have compared his work to like Wagner or something. Whatever you do with a, a work that is huge and rich in motifs and light motifs and themes and stuff, they also do this for Lord of the Rings and Howard Shore a lot. Um, but, like, it is its own work of art on top of the movie that is giving its own commentary on everything. Like, the music is telling its own interpretive story yeah. in tandem with the movie. I don't even know if I want to say on top. Like, I think they are equal co-partners in the telling of this story. And that's how John Williams has always been deployed in Star Wars. And it's something that very, very, very few, if no other composers on living on this earth today are even capable of doing and it's one of those things that, like, and I totally noticed this, like, watching The Last Jedi, and we talked about that, like, the fluidity with which he uses themes and musical associations and how much he conveys to us non-verbally, which we think is our main form of communication, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Like, I actually think one of the main thematic communicators in Star Wars, maybe the primary one, is the music. Yeah. And there is this, I think, 
snobbery against that in some modern film studies of like, well, no, if music is telling you what to feel, that's bad because film shouldn't be manipulative. I hate to tell you guys something. When you've taken one cut from like one area and you've taken another cut from another area and you tape them together in an edit, that's manipulation. I've got, that's I've how... got an even more fundamental point. When you are looking at a series of still images that are moving at such a pace that your brain interprets it as motion, you've, you're already being manipulated in the most basic fundamental way that any yes. living creature can be manipulated. It's about how well you are manipulated, not about whether you are or you are not. Yeah. Every work of art manipulates you. Especially a moving you know, uh, temporally fixed work of art like film. Yeah. And, and yeah, like he is so good at it. Another moment I think of is in this film is when Anakin and Padme are like in the chariot and they're, they're chained up and that's when Padme finally confesses her love and they have their kiss. And that's, that's actually the piece I, I drew from for our theme song this week is the swell as they go into the auditorium and the or into the Colosseum and and like the 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 this frame opens up and all the light pours in and you see the huge crowds and the just the shit they've gotten themselves into but the music like so sells all of that yeah. and then you know just so fluidly changes into kind of the action you know thriller themes of that yeah, scene that, like the, I love the heavy like sort of drum themes that have yep. to do with Geonosis and they like come at the movie with the Bounty Hunter that works for Django. I can't remember what her name is. There used to be a time I remembered the name of every... Cam or something? Something like that. Of every side character in a Star Wars movie. I could have just told you off the top of my head. Um, but, yeah, like, I love... Because that's one of the themes that feels really particular to this movie. Is that, like, like sinister yep. drum beat that doesn't even have... Because it's also, like, feels not very John Williams-y in some ways. It doesn't have any horn or strings in it. It's, like, crazy. Exactly. I know. No, it's... He is so good at what he does. We don't deserve him. He's yeah. the best. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right, um, let's talk about Anakin. Okay, because yeah. it's the elephant in the room, and we're not going to get it's anywhere the main, else. It's the I think his character arc is the main thrust of the movie. In it absolutely ways. is, and I think the biggest revelation for me watching it this time, and it clicked into place almost immediately. Uh, you know, last time I watched this was 2011, so it would have been seven years ago now. God damn it. And so it's been a long time, and whenever I have watched Attack of the Clones previously, I was younger than the character. Than Anakin Skywalker. That's a good point. That's a very good point. I am now older. I'm an adult. I'm 25. I'm older than Anakin Skywalker. We're is older than Spider-Man. God damn it. Yep. We're older than Spider-Man. Indeed. And I don't think I've ever realized, because how could I have realized when I was younger than him? Hayden Christensen's a kid in this movie. Uh-huh. He's, a, he's a fucking teenager. I don't know what his actual age was, but he reads like an 18, 17 or 18 year old. He was 21. He was 21? Yeah, and he's he looks, the same age as Natalie Portman. Yeah, okay. Uh, kind of like Tom Holland in Spider-Man, the, the new Spider-Man. He is technically like 20 or 21, but he reads very yeah, young. He I reads agree. 16. I think Hayden Christensen does. He's got a baby face. He has this... He's always trying, and I think this is a conscious performance choice, is he is constantly trying to have this precocious, like... I'm going to show myself I'm an adult. I'm going to sh- that's why I'm going to project to the world. But it looks like a facade. It looks like it's, it's broken because that's what kids do. Like when you're a teenager and you want to be accepted as an adult, you have to put on this you know, invisible mask. And that mask is omnipresent in this film and it cracks and it disappears at times and it gets fortified at other times. And sometimes rage shows through and sometimes love shows through. But he is an awkward kid and... I think when you view it that way, the entire movie materially changes. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, that is 100% how the movie changed for me as well. And it's something of like part of my grand theory for why people hate this movie so much. Not just like they don't like it, they hate it. You yes. know, in the way that they hate all the prequel movies. Um, but this one in particular has like so much of the spite, particularly like around the sand line and that kind of stuff. Which, which I want to be on record that I have never hated this movie. My criticism always stopped at it being boring. But, like, I think one of the reasons why people fucking hate it, because you don't hate a boring movie, you hate a movie that you hate, um, is that Anakin Skywalker is, I said this before, he's, like, the most authentic teenager, as someone who's been spending more time around teenagers than is ever healthy. Um, Do you want to clarify what you mean by that statement? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going through teacher education, so it's yeah, like okay. I'm doing a lot of field experience at different classes, yes. I'm not, I'm not stealing them from the streets and using them in my teenager experiments. That's a different thing that I'm doing on the side. Okay. No, but, but he is so authentically teenager in that he has no control over himself. He has no idea what he's doing. He desperately thinks that he's an adult or, or wants people to think that he's an adult. He wants people to think that he's powerful. He wants people to acknowledge him. He, th and he thinks that he's powerful, um, but, but is clearly not like anywhere near as powerful as he is, even though he's a Jedi, even though he's supposed to be the chosen one. Like All those things make it even worse. Like, like, you know, that's something that I feel like from my own experience when I was younger of like, I always like kind of resented when people gave me compliments about certain things because it made it feel worse because it's like yeah yeah being a teenager is messy and awkward and every teenager fucking sucks because every teenager will always suck every teenager has always sucked there has this is part of my grand theory of teenagerdom there has never been is not and never will be a cool teenager you might think like you saw like Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic it's like the character might be cool and his performance might be cool Leonardo DiCaprio was a loser as a teenager because everybody is a loser as a teenager it's not possible to be a cool teenager and if it's you want evidence of that watch Romeo plus Juliet exactly you know so but it's the kind of thing that it is this unabashed incredibly embarrassing affecting performance as a teenager because it's embarrassing because i think because again, like you were saying, this is the first time I've watched this movie like on the other side of being an adolescent, and it is something of I see so much of myself in things that Anakin has done. I see so much of my students in things that Anakin is like does in this movie and says yeah. in this movie. The way he acts, the way he swings from like emotional extremes at like small provocations, the way he's trying to be like really emotionally open in some ways and is like really vulnerable but can't quite handle when people are being like honest to him because he's he's vulnerable and he can't quite take it yet. Like, there's it's this, like, really rich mix of adolescent bullshit, but that's, like, that's what adolescents are like. And I think one of the reasons why people hate this movie, to go to my theory, is, is precisely that. That Anakin Skywalker is the most, most honest, true portrayal of a teenager I think I've ever personally seen in a movie. And it is incredibly embarrassing particularly if you are a nerdy guy because i think he is it is a particular nerdy guy version of teenager even more specifically it is so easy to see so much of yourself in that and to hate it because everybody hates themselves everybody particularly hates themselves as a teenager they probably hated themselves when they were a teenager because they were a loser and they knew it and there was nothing you could do about it other than grow older which you can only do by waiting and that sticks in people that fucking sticks in your heart because everybody has said something super fucking stupid to the person you're romantically interested in like i don't like sand it's rough and it gets everywhere but you're so 
You're so smooth. It's like everybody said something fucking stupid like that. Everybody when they're a teenager. Because you don't know how to act. It's the first time you felt anything like that. And you're you're experiencing all these emotions. And you don't know what to do with it. Anakin, I think in particular... Like, there's a lot of commentary, I think, on, like, the Jedi through Anakin and that, like, some the training he is given is so inadequate for what he is going through in life, which is another, I think, like, big teenager kind of thing, um, that it is, it is so true and honest to me, and I legitimately think, I, this is not a joke, I think that is why the people hate this movie as much as they do. Oh, absolutely. I, I, and I think I, you could even reorient it a little bit, which is that... Like, here's one way I would say it. Like, you saying he's, like, one of the most honest portrayals of a teenager you've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. I would say it's in that tier for me, but all the other ones I would put in that tier or above it, they're not in blockbusters. They're in, like, yeah. art house movies or possibly older Hollywood. Like, one of the things I think of is, like, James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Sure. Which everyone thinks of James, Dean's, James Dean in that movie as, like, the symbol of cool. That's not what that movie's about. Yeah. And like you've seen that movie. That movie starts with him, like, drunk on the grass... Like kind of pathetic It continues that way There's the whole You're tearing me apart scene Because he can't figure out How to talk to his parents Like I think actually James Dean That is a great analog For Anakin Skywalker in this But But, the main difference is That people can look at James Dean And what they took from that performance Like the cultural memory of that movie Is how fucking cool and hot Was James Dean Yeah Nobody has ever taken that About Anakin Because Because Like it's it's that thing It's almost like, like Fight Club or something Of how like Fight Club Says it's about one thing, but the, what people take from it aesthetically is the exact opposite. I think it's kind of the same way with Rebel Without a Cause. The, the movie's telling you one thing, but aesthetically people have consumed something different. It's like Star Wars Episode Two. nobody thinks that Anakin is cool. Everyone thinks that Anakin is a lame teenager well, because he's a lame teenager. Yes, but this is what I was going to get into. Is that in movies that are not about heightened scenarios... Like a rebel without a cause, like uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower is a recent one yeah. that I think has phenomenal performances by kids or or young adult actors. Um, uh, you know, in those kinds of movies where it's just about day to day stuff, we don't expect that our heroes have to be likable and perfect. You know, because we know we're going in seeing reality, and so we're okay with that, and we take the good and the bad. Yeah. And when you go to see a Star Wars movie, though, there is this cultural expectation that our heroes are likable and perfect. And I think that's another way you can orient it. Because I think yeah. you're absolutely right that there's that discomfort factor and that I think Anakin does... Like, I think there are legitimate complaints to have with the performance here and yeah, there. Places. But I do think there is that legitimate discomfort with what that character kind of is, the space he exists in. And I also think there is the likability factor that, like... Attack of the Clones is not asking you to think he's like Luke Skywalker, this awesome, admirable hero who we just, you know, un... We don't We unconditionally love You know like He's just an awesome character He has no flaws That's not an issue That's not who Anakin Skywalker is He's not even really A hero Quote unquote In this movie At all And I think that Is just something that like So many of the things The prequels do That people point out Of like That's bad What they really mean To some degree Is that's not what Other movies do And sometimes that's bad You know Like in Justice League Other movies don't CGI their characters Face off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that is a big thing where it's bad, and other movies don't do it. But I think in a lot of these cases, other movies don't do these things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It means this movie is trying something else. And especially if I think you you view this film as you know an inverse of the same place in the original trilogy, yeah. it's extra. Because actually, this is another interesting tre- uh, thread throughout Attack of the Clones is that you know uh, Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith don't really do anything to mirror their respective entries in the original trilogy like Phantom Menace does not use the A New Hope plot structure Revenge of the Sith does not use the Return of the Jedi plot structure 
Um, this movie very much has a ton of points of echoing Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, the parallels thing is very similar. The love plot on one side. Love plot the, on yeah. one side. There's an asteroid field. Boba Fett is in it. Like, it's, it's over and over again. There's a ton of it. Um, but I think it's very, very intentional because it is asking you to draw comparisons and contrasts. And if Anakin were what I think people want him to be, just awesome, admirable, stand-up, cool adult hero... Well, then what distinguishes him from Luke Skywalker? What's the point in telling the fucking story? Yeah. The point in telling this story is that I think there are a lot of uncomfortable truths about just the human condition Anakin in this movie shines a light on before you get to the Darth Vader of it all, you know? So, yes, I, I think him being a kid and an awkward kid is so essential. Like... I love his first scene in the movie where he's in the elevator with Obi-Wan. This charming little scene where they're just bantering, you know, kind of back and forth. But there's, there's no, no hostility in it, really. Yeah. But Anakin is clearly, like, very kind of freaked out. Like, in this scene and in a lot of other scenes, if you really, for whatever reason, cannot get past listening to slightly wooden dialogue, turn the audio off. Just mute your TV. Watch Hayden Christensen's face. Look at his eyes. Look how he fidgets. Look how he kind of has trouble making eye contact. All of these different things that he is using to build a portrayal of someone who is not comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. And what's the first thing he does when he gets out of that elevator and sees Padme? Is he awkwardly hits on her. Yeah. And I don't think he even means to do it, but this is like the one girl he's ever met. He's thought about her for ten years. It's his crush. Yes, that's how people behave. And he's not like harassing her in this moment or anything. He's, I, I think you could argue he does later, but like yeah. here, he's just a teenager talking to a girl. And that happens. You know, yeah, and it's again, it's not the like prettified, cooled up movie version yes. of it. They even like the lamest version of a teenager you've seen in a movie is still several degrees cooler than any ever living teenager ever. Yes, like it's because it's just you can't. It's too awkward. It's too much. Like the authentic, real adolescent human experience is too much for most things. It's 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 a it's one of my theories about. Why Kristen Stewart, when she first appeared on the scene as like a well, she was a child actress at first, yeah. but like later in like Twilight and some of the other movies she did at that time, like Adventureland, which is another entry in the. If you want to see awkward teenagers being awkward teenagers, Adventureland is actually a good one for that. But like, she is she's an actress who is so just in her own skin, and I think has so many interesting human inflections that she doesn't sand off to be an actor, and what makes her a compelling actor. And it's also what makes her the completely wrong choice for Bella in Twilight. Right. Because Twilight is not a story about human beings with human emotions, you know? Yeah, it's this very heightened paranormal romance. And Kristen Stewart is playing... Like, Kristen Stewart would, in that period, and she was in some movies, be the perfect person to play an awkward teenager because she's so good at playing unvarnished awkwardness. Like, see Personal Shopper from last year if you want to see that kind of thing. But, like... Uh, it's really what people took away from that Twilight is like this really doesn't work because you want like the polished thing in a movie like that yeah. and she's like a great art house actress it was a very weird fit um, and it is kind of a thing they did here like Hayden Christensen did sadly he has not really had a career since these movies uh, I would like to see what his other talents are outside of these but he did in between the Star Wars movies he mostly did kind of art house stuff and from what I remember was fairly acclaimed for it like people enjoyed those performances that seems like the kind of mode he runs on more than the kind of Star Wars acting yeah he was like he was never like the normal leading man kind no. of actor ever yeah, yeah. In any like sort of like weird sphere, like he's a handsome dude, but not like you know. Again, to like the Luke Skywalker comparison, sort of Mark Hamill seventies handsome. Yeah, like he's not those same kind of standards, or like I don't know Chris Hemsworth today. Yeah, he's not he's that. He's not like supermodel actor. No. Yeah. 
Yeah, so anyway, going through all that, I mean, but what this movie traces through all that awkwardness, like why is that important, what does it mean, is that I think this movie is a really interesting conflux of moments in Anakin's life where uh, it's kind of the first time he is set loose to do his own thing and has to be an adult on his own, and it's no coincidence that that coincides with most of the foundational things in him becoming Darth Vader, in that he doesn't really properly know how to act around Padme. And so it leads to a very impulsive and poorly thought through love affair. Yes. You know? It's very Romeo and Juliet. Very Romeo and Juliet. The thing people miss in Romeo and Juliet is that it's not supposed to be a model of healthy love. No, yes. It's a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old and they should not be in a relationship together. No, and it's the same thing here. And he also deals with impulsiveness in fulfilling his duties that society has set for him in terms of like being the Jedi, protecting Padme, not disobeying orders all those things. It deals with him having to confront grief and reality for the first time with Shmi, his mother, and we'll talk that whole sequence is amazing. Yeah. And I think the gap between the dream of the Jedi and the reality is never illustrated better than in those moments. But so he has to deal with that. And and so all these things happening and the anger he can't understand it's not a puzzle the movie puts together for you and has a moment where like he turns to the camera and says, I'm going to be Darth Vader one day because, and then lists it all off. It yeah, doesn't he never do like puts on a weird breathing apparatus and just, yes. oh, this is a great idea. I should do this sometime in the future. It's very intimidating. No, it does it all through these character events that don't directly point towards Darth Vader usually, but we know they're on the path because of where he is emotionally in his headspace and what mistakes he's making, what mistakes the people who should be looking out for him are making in terms of how they raise and oversee him. And I think all of that is fascinating. And as an adult, I like that the movie thinks you are smart enough to put it together. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. Because it's also, the other side of that is that it's constantly intercut with Obi-Wan's plot. So it's like, it's vignetted like very specifically in how it's framed because yes. that's how you have to do a parallel plot structure so you're not just following Anakin along which helps in that as you're saying the sort of like the puzzle piece aspect of like you're you're kind of putting it together you're seeing the cracks um, in between those moments and those scenes where you, you're seeing where he's kind of falling apart emotionally and, and like, like you said you also see where the people around him are failing him that like Obi-Wan is obviously out for his looking out for his best interests but like Obi-Wan knows that it's too early for Anakin but the Jedi Council does not listen to him and the Jedi Council like the Jedi Council is constantly making mistakes in this movie like this is the movie do they make a single good choice in this movie? no like Yoda is fucking up every other than like the one scene where Yoda helps Obi-Wan find Kamino which is a fucking brilliant scene when he's with the kids I love that scene so much other than that one scene, Yoda is constantly fucking up. He's constantly making the wrong choice, kind of at every single juncture. There's several scenes between him and his super awesome space buddy, Samuel L. Jackson's Mace Windu, where they, they have a heart-to-heart and say, like, well, we could kind of do one of these two things, and then they do the wrong thing. And you, and you the audience, knows that um, either because both you've seen all six of the movies at this point, like us, or you've seen the original three movies, and you know that eventually Anakin's going to become Darth Vader. You also, like... Everything that happens to Anakin is in some ways, if not orchestrated, at least sort of pressured by Palpatine. Like Palpatine's role in this one is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, like every little thing of like just sticking him together with Padme and getting him off on his own, like all of that is just like pushing. Stoking a bit. his ego he yeah. does in that one scene and you realize he's been doing that for years with Anakin. Yeah, yeah that like all of that is pushing Anakin into this really unhealthy place. 
And and one of my favorite scenes, like we'll talk more about the Shmi scene because I agree with you. It's like that and like the resulting like I slaughtered them like animals. That that whole bit is kind of like the most potent bit of character development for him. But one of my favorite little scenes that I really keyed in on this time is in the the, the happy the flower fields of Naboo and, and Anakin's having the time of his life, and he and Padme are just like sitting out there like having like this lunch while Obi Wan's going through hell on Camino, get his ass kicked by Jango Fett and all this shit. You know, intercutting with Anakin at like you know in this like dreamland, and he's having this conversation with Padme about politics, and and he's saying scene. that like, and it's again, it's the most teenager thing ever the most like like disaffected i think like the system doesn't work man teenager fucking thing ever without knowing anything about like the reality of politics at all and he's talking to padme and and basically saying like like i don't think the system should work and padme says well how do you think the system should work it's like well i think that everyone should get around and discuss like their issues and then agree on a path to solve it and then do it and then padme says well and like, and what I love, like, because I didn't remember exactly how this dialogue went. It's like, in my head, exactly in step, like lockstep with Pat. It's like, that's how it works, you fucking idiot. Like, what that literally you just described democracy to me. That's like, that's like the dic- the dictionary definition. And she's like, well, that's how it works. But what you don't understand is that there are a lot of interests involved, and that it's not as easy to just get everybody to agree on something and just implement a solution. That there is a lot of stuff, especially like you can only imagine with a galactic senate, how much bullshit you have to get through to get anything done in democracy. Like it is one of the legitimate issues with running a democracy. But to get all the other stuff, to get the debate and to get the agreement, you have to have that democracy in place. Like, that's basically, like, the, the gist of what she tells him. And Anakin's solution is, well, somebody should, like, like someone should make them agree. And it's like, who should do that? He's like, well, no, not me. But someone, somebody wise and somebody powerful should make them agree and then get it done. And it's just like, well, that sounds a lot like a dictatorship. And then there's this interesting moment where Anakin says, well, if it works. And there's the, this weird, awkward pause between the two of them. And Padme decides to take it as a joke. And it was not a fucking joke. No, it that's wasn't. one of those moments where, like, Padme should have been like, Anakin, let me take you aside. There's something like, there's something so particular about Anakin in this movie. If you're thinking about like the the nerdy male teenager growing up in this this environment of toxic masculinity that's telling him that he needs to do all these things and he needs to be this protector and and also like this violent avenger and he has all this power and authority to enact violence and to express himself aggressively but then also told to like be compassionate and be like upstanding and stoic and all these like like things and being raised in that environment and then coming out the other side as Darth Vader is so 100% what happened over the course of the last five fucking years on the internet. That's like, it's, like that's Gamergate, right? Like, that's this, this like, awkward like, male adolescence that is told all these things that you're supposed to have and how powerful you're supposed to be in society and never feeling any of it and feeling spurned and feeling rejected and, and feeling gross with yourself and your place in the world. And then somebody reaches out a hand and tells you, this is how you feel powerful. This is what you do. This is like this is how you make a place for yourself in the world, and this is how you live that life, and then and and that is what Darth Vader is like. That's what Palpatine is kind of doing to him in this movie, and you come out Darth Vader the other side. Like, that, if that's not the most prescient fucking thing in a movie, I don't know what is because it, it is well, one hundred percent what I felt throughout this whole part of this movie. 
Gamergate into Trump into authoritarian tendencies yes, to, in the United to States, like and, Nazism to yes. to that sense of like fascism. Because what you know, what Anakin is describing is the past, the path of fascism, the 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 such and intense the, frustration with the flaws of democracy, which are real, that you lose sight of the benefits of democracy in trying to shore up those flaws. That you sacrifice everything you gained in democracy to get to to get this like weird fascist dictatorship that will never be able to do anything that you want because it's just one guy or one like figurehead that is pushing through through like force and violence their agenda which is never what anybody actually wants but they they convince themselves that it is it's one of the very interesting political threads in these films and one that i think we'll get into more with revenge of the sith because it puts a cap on all of this yeah but definitely in this film like Showing how those are natural human impulses that, like, you very easily arrive at if you're Anakin Skywalker in that moment confronted with that intellectual debate. Yeah. And that, of course, it's happened throughout history. Like, that's what happened in Nazi Germany was all these people sitting around in pubs talking about how they didn't like the non-blonde people. Yeah. You know? Like, and they get together behind a person who's not actually Aryan to get their job done. You know? Like... It's it's a thing that recurs throughout history, so it is both it is prescient to the American moment. It exists in absolutely this also this movie also. I think it's shocking if you think about that this came out six months after nine eleven and a year before the Iraq War because this movie yeah. is this movie is about what America did uh-huh. in that moment. Like it's amazing how how on the nose it is, but it's prescient because it is rooted in history and human psychology and things that are understandable patterns that we need to know so we don't fucking repeat them. Yeah. But they're kind of inevitable that they will be repeated. And that's what's going on here. And I love that, as you say, though, there's so many moments where all someone would have to do is kind of take Anakin aside and give him a good talking to. Yeah. And kind of care about him enough to say the hard things. Like, Anakin can, could be gotten through to here. Absolutely, there's nothing yeah. inevitable that he has to become Darth Vader. Like, there's all these little things in the movie that could correct that. Like, you know, I'm not saying it's on Padme's shoulders, but just imagine if Padme was like, instead of laughing in that moment, was like, you know what? I got a book for you to read, Anakin. Yeah, or, like, she's a fucking senator. Like, she definitely knows her shit about democracy. Yes. So, like, what if that happened? Or the whole thread with Anakin's mother, like... I don't think Obi-Wan did this out of malice, but if Obi-Wan took that seriously and said, maybe you're having premonitions, maybe I talk to the Jedi Council and we just go to Tatooine and check on her, you know? And if that happened, nothing bad would happen to her. They would save her. It would be okay. And Anakin would have peace of mind. And he'd probably be a better Jedi for it if they just didn't have such a fucking stick up their asses about it. Yeah. You know? And there's just so many little things there. And so Anakin is at once a character I think you are... Not asked to like, and in fact, in a lot of areas, you're meant to, I think, kind of dislike his personality and stuff, while always having an empathy to understand where he's coming from. Like, I think the moment where he's in, uh, Padme is packing up in the capital in Coruscant, and Anakin kind of is talking to her, and I love the whole progression of this scene where he starts saying, he says something about Obi-Wan, and... And Padme throws something back at him about how, like, you don't respect Obi-Wan. He says, no, no, Obi-Wan's a great master. He's like a father to me. He's taught me so much. He's as wise as Master Yoda and as powerful as Master Windu. And he's, like, he's honest in that. Like, he is, I think that is from the heart. But he talks himself into the complaint, the petty complaint about he holds me back. I, I feel like I have all this stuff in me I don't understand. I could do more. He's basically like a gifted student, we would call now. Yeah. You know, like someone who has a lot of talents who whatever their system is, is not accommodating them. And that can be a tremendously unhealthy scenario to be in, in any kind of system. And 
it's a petty beef he has at that moment and, and the way he expresses it, but it's a very human one. And if you can look me in the eye and tell me as a teenager you never had a moment like that about someone who you truly care about, you're a liar. Yeah, exactly. Everyone has done that. Mm-hmm. And he does that throughout. And like when that recurs at the end about how, like, or uh, not at the end, but after his mother dies and he rails against Obi-Wan in this shed on Tatooine, whatever yeah. you call that, the little workshop that Luke is in in A New Hope, um, what he's coming around to is that it's like, why didn't Obi-Wan listen to me? Like, there's an actual pain there of, like, I love Obi-Wan Kenobi and he didn't fucking listen to me. And that is also something that teenagers have because it's really hard for anyone to listen to a teenager. Yes, because they're all losers, as we've already gone over. Yes, but their pain is real. And, and so all of that, I think, feels... I love that all the things that make Darth Vader Darth Vader come from very real, uncomfortable human emotions. It's not, to me, a super hackneyed, cliched origin story for Darth Vader. No. You know, he didn't fall in a vat of acid and become evil. He went through a human process by which... You know, things happened and choices were made, and he slowly devolved into fascism. Yeah, he, he felt betrayed by the world around him, he lost sight of himself, and a, like, very tempting, more powerful elderly male figure dragged him into the dark side. Like, yes. It's, yeah, it's, it is so prescient. Another, another moment of, like, like, where you see the, like, you're not, like, like you're not 100% bad Anakin, I can see, like, the good in you. Is a moment that like stood out to me a lot in this rewatch that I don't remember really like affecting me much before is that scene after the big like car chase and the bounty hunter lady has run into the CD bar um, and and Obi Wan and Anakin are going in and Obi Wan says like why do I get the feeling that you're going to be the death of me which is of course you know it's like a little bit of foreshadowing I think everybody kind of it's very on the nose yeah people sort of end up rolling their eyes at that bit. Which is unfortunate because you miss, like, that. that's not actually what that line is talking about. Like, yeah, like, it's a fun little nod. But what, like, is actually happening is that I love the, the interaction after that where Anakin just says, Oh, don't say that, Master. You're the closest thing I have to a father. And Obi-Wan just says, Well, then why don't you listen to me? And he says, I try, Master. I try. And, and that's, like, such a, like, like warm like, real, like, dialogue between those two characters that, again, like, reasserts the teenagerness of it. That, like, you know, you can tell and you know that Anakin is being honest and, and real in that moment where he's telling Obi-Wan, like, you're like a father to me. But then, like, Obi-Wan also, like, clearly not getting it when he says, well, why don't you listen to me? It's like, what teenager has ever listened to their fucking dad? Like, yeah. right? Like, you're, you're, not, you're not seeing... I think, in some ways, Obi-Wan actually, like, critically misunderstands the relationship he has with Anakin. Because he treats it like Master and Apprentice. And Anakin sees it as father and son because Anakin never had a dad. Yeah. And, and Obi-Wan arrived in his life when he really desperately needed that. Because yeah. he was yanked away from his mother. You yeah. know? So, yes. Uh, let's talk about the mother. And all the stuff yeah. on Tatooine. I just think it's a brilliant succession of scenes. We talked about the visuals there, and those are amazing. What I love is, and especially watching it in close proximity to The Phantom Menace and having that conversation we had about The Phantom Menace, is what a payoff that whole stretch is on the themes of Anakin's arc in The Phantom Menace, where he is visited by this amazing Jedi warrior, Qui-Gon Jinn, and his vision of the Jedi is they, they'll come to this planet and free all the slaves and make us all happy. And while it doesn't exactly work out like that, he is freed. He does get to go off and have amazing adventures like some of his belief in the Jedi is rewarded there, you know? Yeah. 
And so he goes off to the Jedi Order believing they are a certain thing. And I think he grows up thinking the Jedi are a certain thing. And he has certain entitlements because of that. And it's part of his frustration at the start of this movie. And the exact scenario he imagined as a child comes to play where he has a chance to go to Tatooine and free his mother and right an injustice and all those things. And the world isn't that simple. His yeah. mother, uh, like, like in, some, in different ways, like in one way his mother had a much better life after he left than he would have thought that she got married and she had a loving husband yeah, and a family she was released and, from her well, released sold by Watto but like sold to her new husband yes and and so she had a, a very good life through those years and was happy but then this horrible tragedy happened where she is kidnapped and Anakin is powerless he cannot save her he can only hold her while she dies and I think Hayden Christensen's best moment of acting in the entire movie is him cradling his mother, and it's all nonverbal. And just look at the eyes. Look at... He can't... He literally can't comprehend what's going on. Yeah. Because he thought this was... He, it's his first real encounter with death like that. It's his first real encounter with his own powerlessness, with mortality, with all these limitations he has, and all the limitations he thought he could overcome by being a Jedi, by the story he had told himself... And watching him have to go through and accept that, and then I think the payoff to that of the only reaction he has is violence, and just kill fucking all of them, and then come back and tell Padme about it because it's tearing him up inside. It's not a simple, like, cause-effect thing. There's so much more going on in those moments that I think are really emotionally nuanced, and... I think they're easy to overlook, again, in part because that's not the mode Star Wars usually operates on, and it, or big-budget movies usually operate yeah. on. But I think it's a really fascinating one. Yeah, and it does... It just... One thing that's interesting about it to me, like, thinking about the, like... You know, we're living in, like, the superhero moment, right? In, in pop culture, and, like, superheroes are so big again. But one of the things that you always have to sort of, like, when you get older, like, critically sort of engage with with superheroes is the relationship with the superhero and, and violence and how the myth the mythology of the superhero is that you can solve social problems with violence and like the solution to like and not just like like you know they're like something like like you can overthrow governments and like you know overthrow a dictatorship and install a republic with violence and there's like legitimate uses of violence you can maybe discuss in that kind of sector but it's like you can solve like minute social ills with the application of violence you can you can solve like minor theft by punching a motherfucker in the face that like that's like how superheroes solve problems and and i don't think there's anything wrong with superhero fiction because of that i think it's something that you especially when you get older you have to have a critical relationship with that you can enjoy superhero movies and superhero characters i do just fine and recognize that um but one thing that is very interesting to me is when you dig into that issue in, in a work of art, which is one of the things that I think Watchmen does as a piece of superhero fiction. And this does it also. Like, it's not strictly superhero superheroes. You know, you're not dressing up as a Spider-Man and swinging off and, and, like, you know, solving a bank heist or something. But, you, but like, the vision that Anakin has of himself is 100% equivalent to a superhero. When he's a kid and saying, like, I'm, like, like, the Jedi Knights are superheroes. They go around the universe with magic powers and laser swords, and they solve problems. And like, and, and how do you solve a problem with a laser sword? It's a pretty direct, like, hammer nail situation, right? Yes. You cut some motherfuckers up, and so that's like. And to be fair, the Jedi cut motherfuckers up, and that's one of the ways we primarily see them resolve issues in the movies. You were told that they solve things in diplomatic matters. 
outside of the big stories we're told. But what we are shown is that they do resolve the majority of their issues, they, the problems they face, with lethal violence. And so Anakin is constantly told that this is like, like, like he's trained in the martial arts. I think he's like the idea of the Jedi is that you're trained in the martial arts for the philosophical like perspective of it, like a Shaolin monk would be. But still, you're being trained how to kill people with a weapon, you know, and and that like that's how you're going to solve your problems. And you're really fucking good at it. Like you're the best student in your class. You're really you're really good with your magic powers, and you're really good with your your sword skills. And Ultimately, that that's not actually how you're ever going to solve any of those problems. It's like how it's like like being really good at killing people is never going to make you feel better about the fact that your mom's dead, right? Yes. Like you can't like that's not a tool you can bring with you practically to deal with almost any emotional situation I can ever imagine. Like, but that's the only thing he has to sort of to hold onto is this fantasy of himself being this superhero that solves the world's problems and kills the bad guy and and. The, like one of the most tragic things about it all is that like the Tuscan Raiders aren't even just like strictly evil. Like it's it's very easy easy to demonize them for what they do to Shmi. But one of the I think really canny things you see in that moment when Anakin steps out and ignites his lightsaber is you have a brief shot of a child Tuscan Raider running away from him, and like 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 you see that you see for this brief moment Anakin gets this tiny glimpse that this is a culture. This is the people that, like, they're not just monsters because there's a fucking, like, five-year-old kid, one of them, right here, like, playing a game. And and he goes and he kills all of them because it's the, the only thing he can think of to do. I mean, the recurring theme in the prequels of Anakin's relationship to violence on children. Yeah. And that the movies don't, not only don't shy away from that, it's a laser focus in this film and especially in Revenge of the Sith. I think that's very canny. Yeah. Because I think it's very easy to ignore violence on children when, in fact, if violence is perpetrated on adults in this world, it's going to be perpetrated just as much, if not more so, than it, as on kids. Exactly. And and that's, like, the th- one of the things about Anakin's character is that he can't let that shit go. He can't find a way to deal with his problems in a way that does not make use of violence. Because it's the only, in some ways, it's the only thing he's been taught. Or the other way to look at it is that he's never paid attention to any of the other things that he's been taught. And he just grabs onto this one fantasy he's had and desperately wants to make himself in that image. And then, of course, you have Palpatine there sort of stoking those flames and telling him, you are the most powerful Jedi. You're the most remarkable Jedi I have ever seen in my life, man. And, of course... That yes. kid is then going to go out and do those things in the world. And and I I love that at every step of the way in his transformation to Vader in this film, it is, as I said, it's those very human failings where you don't have to approve of what he does. You shouldn't in a lot of these oh. cases. But at the same time, I don't think it's very easy to judge him for it. In no. the sense of like, you know, let ye who is without sin cast the first stone. I can't cast a stone at Anakin for those things because if I were in that exact situation... Probably snap the exact same way. Like, yeah, and you had those abilities and you had that training. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's all very understandable. I think it's a very organic transformation that happens. And, again, I think a lot of this gets lost in talk of, like, you know, is, it, is the delivery of, I hate them, a little awkward in the overall th- spectrum of things? Sure, but I, actually, I don't think so. Like, I actually, that's my kind of my favorite piece of acting for him because it's something of his kind of like what you're talking about with Kristen Stewart. It feels authentic. Like, no, and it I doesn't agree. Feel actorly to me at all. Well, that's what I was going to get to. Is yeah. that in the spectrum of 
what we take out of these kind of big Hollywood performances. Does it feel a little awkward? Yes. But then ask yourself, like, what, what is it that makes you feel awkward about it? To me, it's kind of the unvarnished emotion that goes into that scene and that it doesn't, it, it is a performance choice, but it doesn't feel like Hayden Christensen is polishing it to the point of, like, I'm doing Shakespeare on stage. Yeah. It feels like I'm a kid who just killed a bunch of people after watching my mother died. Yeah, and he doesn't really understand why he did it. He can't yeah. grapple with that. I think that's one of the things I like about the writing of that scene yeah. is how he's Great. just like railing out against anything that comes yeah. to mind. I actually think the writing of that entire scene is fantastic. I think the way it starts with Padme comes in, he's in the little workshop, and he st- the first line of that is... Um, you know, I like fixing things. Yeah. Or, or I forget what the exact line it's, is. It's, I like fixing things. I've always been good at fixing, fixing things. things. Yeah. And I think that as our way into that scene, like the thing that transitions us from the previous moment into this conversation about what happened to his mother, about mortality, about killing all these people, as that little thing of just that little character trait that we know has always been true of little Anakin Skywalker, is he's good at fixing things. I think it's actually a very clever, smart way, direct way into it. Yeah. And I think the build from that point of, like, he's doing this to distract himself, to he's with someone he feels he can be open with, to he reveals too much, and he has things he needs to get off his chest, and he doesn't have a good outlet for it. It's all very well done. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's a lot on Anakin Skywalker. Yep. There's probably other things to talk about. Um... Let's talk about Padme and her side of it while we're yeah. here. Um, I would actually... So you said earlier about Natalie Portman. I'd like to have that conversation a little bit. I, I agree that the writing on Padme is scattershot in this film. Yeah. I do think she's a very good performer in here. I actually think if you look at the jump in like just the general confidence of her performance between the last film and this one, it's pretty immense for just three years. And I think she's a very savvy performer in this film. Has a, I think there's moments where she's saddled with things that are somewhat unperformable. But I, I do like her performance in this movie an awful lot. For me, it's the kind of thing that, like, like with the writing, it's something where I feel like it's so scene by scene. Like, some sure. scenes I really like her, and some scenes, and it's like, you know, it's hard to tell, like, what is the performance, what is the direction, what is the writing, but it's like, at the end of the day, like, the easiest thing to say is, like, well, the performance didn't convince me. Yeah. Um, but I yeah. think, you know, I think Padme is a more interesting character in theory than she was ever realized through the films. Yeah. Like, for this one in particular, you know, she has a lot of different interesting character traits going on in that she is a young person who has had to grow up very fast. She's had a lot of, um, you know, responsibility on her shoulders, which she has taken willingly. She's a senator. She's also kind of a fighter at the end. She's very um, good at, like, taking command of a situation. And I think there's a lot of interesting character traits that I think Natalie Portman generally runs with to make into something three-dimensional. But at the same time, the central crux of this movie is the romance, right? Yeah. And that they have to fall in love. It is very easy to see why why Anakin Skywalker loves Padme Amidala. Yeah. That is no question. Met her when she, he was nine. First woman she ever saw. I still love Natalie Portman for the same reasons. We all get it, right? Sure, yes. But I, it's really hard to pinpoint what she sees in him the same way. Yeah, because I think for me, what I I grapple with is like when I say that things are scattershot and like sometimes I think it's really good, sometimes I like don't know what's happening. Is that like there's kind of feels like there's two versions of the love plot that are happening at the same time. Like that kind of like in terms of like specifically their relationship um, that transitions and is different from scene to scene to me. One is that Padme has this sort of like motherly pity for Anakin, and that's like. What, like, she, she 
quote unquote loves him, but like not in a Romeo and Juliet way, in a like yeah. like like this sort of like she knows it's a bad idea. She knows that what she's doing is wrong, but she can't help to feel this like need to sort of mother him in some ways. And like I can see that relationship with like the age difference in particular makes that work, how much more sort of like wise and worldly Padme is compared to Anakin in some ways makes that work and that's where I think Natalie Portman is really good when, when it's it, in that mode. Yeah, if the movie leaned into the Freudian more it would be better. Yeah, if it did that more it would work better. Although that would also I think it would make it like episode three would have a lot to deal with if they went because that's such a messy relationship for two characters to have that that would have been a whole other sort of set of problems. Like the other like like sort of like side of the romance plot and is the side that like the movie is less convincing to me but is the side that the movie ultimately falls on is like is I think the Romeo and Juliet kind of thing of that Padme is like she's older than Anakin but is like relatively speaking still young and it's like not impossible to imagine that she would have the sort of spur of the moment romance with someone even though a lot of her character traits tell us is like that's not really who she is that like but the like, to me, that's, like, the, the sort of the push and pull that I think, on the one hand, if they want to do the Romeo and Juliet thing, Padme needed to be the same age as Anakin. Like, yes. she can't be older than him because that just that doesn't spark that dynamic. You need them to both be, like, young, inexperienced kids that jump in it together because they're both, like... Because they're, like, the, the only thing you need to convince me of them be having a romance is that they're both 16 and they're both attractive young, like, people. And so, of course, they're going to fall in love with each other. Like, in the... And, you know, Anakin has, like, a laser sword and magic powers and Padme is super smart and a dope senator that, like, shoots shit. Like, of course these two people are going to fuck. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Yes. But, like, the the... Like Padme, particularly it's like when Padme at the end of the movie tells Anakin, I love you, that moment falls flat for me in like that the the character dynamics, if not the staging, I think is awesome. Like I love them like on the yes, chariot yeah. and going out, like all that shit's awesome. But the, the character relationship has not built to the point that you can convince me that Padme would say that to him, even though I think you could convince me that she would have continued this, what is ultimately a toxic relationship with Anakin purely out of this weird, like specific sense of motherly pity. Yes. It's the movie is, I think of two minds on how to treat that romance. I, I would kind of love to pick George Lucas's brain about what was the root of the decision in movie one. You knew they were going to get together. Yeah. Why is he nine and she 14? Like exactly. what's the, where'd that come from? Cause she could have been younger. She, there's yeah, ways she was could've... a child queen. Like yeah, yeah. so much of that would make sense if she was the sheltered child queen that like like lived that life and then is yeah. like released from it now and is like kind of free for the first time that I could you could totally do that plot and it would make 100 percent right. sense to you me. know you don't get Natalie Portman in that case but you, you find someone and it works like yeah. I mean you could actually still have her for the sequels of course um, you just wouldn't in in the first film so I'd kind of like to know where the root of that was because it is just a it's a weird element like in the grand scheme of things two people being five years apart in age and being in a romantic relationship nothing wrong with that. In this specific case, what's weird is that it's, again, it's the gap between... I see Anakin's perspective. She hasn't seen him since he was prepubescent. Yeah. And there is just something odd that I don't think the movie fully knows how to grapple with. In I that. mean, it, it's that, like, if they have sex from our current American cultural standards, that is statutory rape. That's the odd thing. Well, sh well he's... What is he? He's 19 in this film. Oh, is he 19? I thought he yeah, was, yeah. like, 17. No. But what I mean is odd is that her previous view of him... Like, he's built up love over 10 years because 
he knew her. She was always pubescent, like an adult, right? Right, yeah. And that's he was looking up to her. She would never have had that. Her memory of him for ten years would have been as a little kid. Like, here's one thing I said last night watching the movie, is that, like, easy, like, script writing thing for me would be they, would, they should have had a pre-existing relationship. Like, not that, like, they were in love, but, like... It's weird. I think it's a weird script choice to say they just full on didn't see each other for 10 years. Like, it should have been something like they have seen each other in passing. They have spent some amount of time together. Like, Anakin's Jedi work has brought him in proximity with the senator from Naboo, who, you know, he and Obi Wan had a significant relationship with because of the events of The Phantom Menace. And that, like, maybe Attack of the Clones is the first time they've been thrown in this close proximity where they're on their own together but like something happened over the years where like Padme would have had the time to start seeing things in him yeah. because the movie the, as it is it relies on us completely believing that it comes out of from the beginning of this film to the end of this film that's her only experience with post-pubescent Anakin Skywalker yeah. and that's where it's just there's, a, there's just choices there that are bizarre to me yeah it is definitely like there are things they could have done to smooth that out and it is easily like the weakest part of the movie to me is that that relationship doesn't totally sell but like like I said if if like the writing didn't quite do it or the performances didn't quite do it at least the John Williams song totally yes. did and I'll also say I don't think Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen have the right kind of chemistry That's, I just yeah. like for a series that does have some explosive sexual chemistry in it like Harrison Ford Carrie Fisher right, yeah. or uh, you know John Boyega Oscar Isaac in the new ones which is still unrequited but yes. It's there. And Ewan McGregor and everybody. Oh, absolutely. That fucking... And Mace Windu and Yoda. <laughs> you can't tell me that, like, those sidelong glances at each other where they don't say anything. Come on, man. How, on the same wavelength. How much was. slash fic do you think there is of Yoda Mace Windu? It can't Not be, enough. It can't be the most popular slash fic. Oh, no. But there's got to be some. I can almost I can almost guarantee you that the most popular slash fic is Anakin Number One. I can almost, oh, of course, of course it almost is. guarantee you. Is that is that even a question? No. No. That's... There you go. But yes. Yeah. But it should be Mace Windu and Yoda because there's some crackling sexual chemistry between yes. that CGI little green man and Samuel Jackson. Absolutely there is. Um, all right. I'm looking for Yoda, Don't Mace Windu, slash fix. Step away. We are conducting legitimate academic critical work here. We cannot do this. Alright, I'll turn it off. I just found one called Mace Windu's Day Off. And it, just, it, it, it spelled lightsaber wrong. It had all the bakings of a, of a great joke on this podcast. Anyway, let's get back to the topic at hand. Alright, so we talked about Padme and the Anakin romance and stuff. Yeah. Why is Obi-Wan Kenobi the greatest character in the history of fiction? Go! Maybe not that big, but he is awesome. He is so fucking awesome in this movie. Especially, like... From, like, he's awesome from the beginning, and I love, like, his whole role in the, the car chase and all that shit, but particularly as soon as they let him go and say, Obi-Wan, go do your thing, and he goes to this run-down 1950s Coruscant space diner. My meets, favorite set in the movie. I love and it. And he meets up with Dex, this dirty-ass four-armed alien that, that Obi-Wan has some sort of, like, mysterious relationship with like it's this very Indiana Jones ass scene where it's like these two characters that clearly have known each other forever but you've only seen them like meet this one time and and Dex like explains this what you got here is a Camino and Saber dart. That's one of my favorite Star Wars scenes ever. It's I wish so, we got more stuff like that. It's, it's so, so good. good. Just because Ian McGregor is just he, there's something that like he both captures 
obviously like the Alec McGuinness everything of Obi-Wan, but then also, you know, there's that fresh Scottish energy. Like it's just, he's got this magnetic charismatic presence that so sells Obi-Wan. But then, and then he's, when you put him into this cool, weird sci-fi like detective plot on top of that, it is just utterly gripping. And it feels like, and this is something like uh, this whole movie and like this weird sort of perspective I have now feels like, like it's not the prequel to Star Wars Episode Four, Five, Six. It's the prequel to Star Wars: The Clone Wars, the TV show. <laughs> because so much of the stuff in this movie feels like it's like, obviously, like the way it actually worked is Star Wars: The Clone Wars, the TV show took a lot of shit from Episode Two and Episode Three. But you know, having watched that TV show more recently, and now obviously they have to prepare to watch through it again because fucking man, does this movie set that show up really well? Um, this that sort of like kernel of that plot of you know, Obi-Wan having to go solve this detective mystery is so, like, what that sh- that team took that ball and ran with it for so many plots of that show. And it's just this, there's something indescribably just magnetic about it. And the mystery is so interesting of the, the small steps through of going to the Jedi Archive, having the very memorably unhelpful librarian lady at the Jedi Archive. I always <laughs> like her. And they do... They bring her back in the Clone Wars TV show. She's a minor, minor character in a couple of episodes, and they do something interesting with her that I don't oh, want to nice. spoil because I, I just seen it. Yet. I just love her. Like, if we don't have it, it doesn't exist. This- I love the idea of like if you walked into a library today and said, "Hey, do you have the Adventures of Tom Sawyer?" And the library looks, "No, we don't have it." It's like, "Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't exist." What? If we don't have Tom Sawyer, Tom Sawyer doesn't exist. I just love imagining a librarian saying that. Yeah, but. Because the, the one thing you need to be a librarian is intellectual curiosity, probably. The woman doesn't have it. Well, if you, I mean, but she's not just a librarian. She's the Jedi librarian. Yes. No, like, you're this right. This is the Jedi motherfucking archive. Like, there's something actually weirdly sort of Doctor Who about her character. Like, she feels like a Time Lord in that moment of, like, yeah. if it's not in the Matrix, it doesn't exist. Yes. Um, but, and then going from that scene to was one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie which we have to just talk through, which is Obi-Wan is stumped because Kamino, oh, he yeah. knows from Dex that, that this is a Kamino and Saber dart because of the weird scratches on the side because those archive robots, those archive droids, they oh, they go by symbols. It's like, I, just, everything, I fucking love Dex so much. But he goes from that and goes to talk to Yoda to figure out, like, well, if the archive doesn't have Kamino and I know from Dex that this planet exists... Like, how am I going to find it? And Yoda is in the middle of teaching the the youngling Jedi Padawans and, in, in like, you know, doing the whole, like, robot, remote drone, lightsaber, like, deflect training. And, and Yoda takes the second to use it as a teachable moment for the whole class. And the kid is the one who comes up with, well, if it's not there, it must have been deleted from the archive. Because if the archive has everything and this planet has to be here because the gravity says that this planet is here... Well, then, like, that tells that, like, like he, he, you know, he draws the very, like, Sherlock Holmes conclusion of if you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. That, like, then the archive maybe did have everything, and this has then been deleted. And then that little scene, that pocket scene, 
tells you and evokes so much about what it must be like to be a Jedi, what the Jedi training is like. Well, how much how much nicer must be to be a little tiny Jedi than to be Anakin and Obi Wan that go through all this bullshit, and you get to hang out with cool Yoda who gets to just who doesn't like. In that moment, Yoda doesn't have to be the proprietor of the Jedi Order. He just gets to be a teacher. Yoda's in his element. Yoda's a yeah. good teacher. right? And, and that's like, yeah, that's where you get to see where Yoda is in, in Episode 5, in Episode 6, where, like, you know, he's left all that shit behind him. And it's one of the places where you can see that they are, like, the way that they have constructed the Yoda character to be very different from the Yoda we know is 100% deliberate. That's like, he's not born for this leadership role over the Jedi. He's born to be this compassionate, interesting, inquisitive teacher of these children. Like, that's what he's good at in, yes. his, in his element in that moment. Yeah, I love that scene. I love the John Williams cue in that scene. It's a beautiful little... You should just listen to it. It's very different for Star Wars. No, great scene. Um, Ewan McGregor is Obi-Wan yeah. I just want to get back to this One I love like He so sells that Obi-Wan is 10 years older in this movie Yeah And yes it's 90% the facial hair But it's 10% He's just He holds himself so differently I love how he Nods to the Alec Guinness performance Of like that's where I'm going But he so makes it his own yeah. And I, I Look I love Alec Guinness to death His Obi-Wan is so great but the, when I think of Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's Ewan McGregor. Like, just yeah, if you say the name, that's what comes to my mind. Because he got to play it more. Like, it's just, he had more time to explore the character and make it his own. And, of course, it's the version that we took for all the cartoons and everything. So it's just, it's become kind of the definitive Obi-Wan. And I just think his energy in this movie is so great. There's a scene where they're in the bar, in the CD bar, where they have the yes. assassins. Oh, God, yeah. And uh, the guy asks, you want some death sticks? And he says, no, you don't want to sell me any death sticks. He says, I don't want to sell you any death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want, I want to, to go, go home and, and rethink, rethink my life. life. And I love that Obi-Wan doesn't even look at him. It's just so fucking casual. And it's so like, yes, that's the guy, Alec Guinness, who would become Alec Guinness. Yeah. But like, he has this force power, and he uses it so casually to just... Basically tell this guy to fuck off through the force. It's an amazing little moment. Like, there's some great comic timing in this film. Yeah. That scene is legitimately hilarious. Yeah, and that's also where you get one of the more direct nods to Obi-Wan of the future where he spins around and cuts her hand off. Yes, very that's cool. very good. Yes. No, lots of great little things like that. Uh, all the stuff on Camino, I, I Gosh, tend to yeah. enjoy. I think it's a beautiful set and so alien and weird. Yeah, the, the design of like both like the environment and the Kaminoans themselves is yes. one of my favorite alien designs in Star Wars. They're so weird. They're so weird. I love how like Obi Wan plays all that like very carefully. Of like, I can't let them know I know nothing. But I have to get information out of them. Yeah. That's all very interesting. Um, Jango Fett gets to be cooler than Boba Fett ever was. I mean, he gets but more lines still, of dialogue. But he's still not that cool because he dies very easily again. Yeah. <laughs> but it is one of the things of, of Jango Fett lives on in this very distinctive voice for the clones, for the Star yes. Wars. Again, one of those things of like watching this movie for the first time since I saw that TV show. It's like, fucking man, like... Like, if nothing else, the casting of this guy was so perfect because that voice is so good and so iconic and so distinctive and unique. Mm -hmm. That's like, fucking man. Like, it's, yeah, I really like Django in this movie. No, I like Django too. He's, he's a cool character. Uh, I don't think I, for some reason it didn't click with me until now that, like, the Spartan helmets in Halo are just Boba Fett. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. a certain degree. Like, different variations on Boba Fett. Uh, because, like, putting it in an environment that looks more like Halo, it just came to my mind more. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, the whole fight with Jango Fett on, in the rain in this one, you know, on yeah. Camino is great. And I love all of Obi-Wan's reactions at the end when he's 
like his scene with Christopher Lee is great. We'll get to that. But also when he's chained up and uh, Anakin and Padme are brought in, I love Obi Wan's just like, yeah, this was gonna happen. Yeah. He's so resigned to all of it. Like my my brother, we were watching it together, and he just said like throughout all of this, like Obi Wan is so zen about this entire situation. So he's like. I'm either going to get out of this or I'm not. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll, I'm either going to figure out how to get out of these chains and fight all these guys or I'm not. And whatever. And he's just such a cool character in that way. Yeah, I do particularly like the moment where Anakin's there. It's like, and we decided to come and rescue you, master. And then, and then he like glances up at his chains and is like, good job. Yeah, like yeah. he's just frustrated enough to be petty. Yeah, and he's just been through the shit so much with Anakin. Like he does yeah. so much to communicate that like strained relationship with his quiet Jedi sarcasm. There's also some great dramatic moments, like near the end when uh, Padme falls off the ship, and but they also know that Count Dooku is getting away, and Obi-Wan has to give a talking to to Anakin about what his duty is. Great moment. Yeah. Well written, well acted, good moment. Ewan McGregor is the fucking best. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Like, Give us the fucking Obi-Wan spinoff movie. It's the only one I actually want. Uh-huh, yeah. Don't care about Han Solo. I don't care about Rogue One. Ewan McGregor is alive and well and willing to play it. Do it. Exactly, yes. Yes. Anyway, um, all right. What what other characters do? Should we talk about Count Dooku next and his side sure, of things? Sure. Yes. Let's talk about Christopher Lee. Uh, and I think this should also tie into like there's the whole conspiracy plot of this movie. Not all of it makes perfect sense, but I also think it doesn't have to because it's about a giant shadowy conspiracy. Right. Um, but yeah, Christopher Lee is Count Dooku slash, and slash Darth Tyrannus slash Darth Tyrannus, and I just you know say what you will. I still think it's just we don't appreciate enough that George Lucas got Christopher fucking Lee in a Star Wars movie. Uh-huh. And it's a blessing to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Like like the Count Dooku role could have been fleshed out more in this movie. Yes. Um it's one of the things that leads to I think the climactic lightsaber battle of this movie is the weakest of the three of the prequels just cuz yes. like there's not as much emotional sort of like build up to it. Cuz even though Darth Maul doesn't have a lot of stuff, he definitely has a lot more than Count Dooku. Like he at least has that little scene like in the middle where he attacks Qui-Gon Jinn on Tatooine and stuff. Um, but yeah, so it's like, there's some things you could have done better with Count Dooku. Although on the other hand, again, it's one of those things of like Star Wars, the Clone Wars show did so much to sort of like fix some of the weird little problems of the prequels of like, they did a lot to show you like, okay, this is how Anakin goes from whiny teenager to being like superhero. Um, and then also like, it just, you get a lot more Count Dooku. He's not voiced, he's voiced by Christopher Lee in the movie, like the pilot movie, but not in the full TV show for obvious reasons. But like, yeah, the, the. So, like, while I say that, like, they could have done more to flesh him out in this movie, I don't personally actually really feel it because I already have all so much of that character. But, yeah, like, he's just Christopher Lee, in, inimitable, like, yeah, perfect, perfect in everything he's ever been in. He is. He's uh, He's got a curved red lightsaber. That alone is just so fucking great. He communicates great. so much. Like, that lightsaber, the fact that he has that weird curved, like, sort of, like, fencing lightsaber thing... And the way he holds it. Yeah, it communicates so much of that character, the physicality. I love that you, like, like because Christopher Lee, you know, old, old school actor, been around since, like, special effects were invented. The dude knows how to pretend to shoot lightning from his hands. Yes, like, he does. 100%. And he just, just the motherfucker played Dracula knows how to shoot some fucking fake lightning from his hands. He, he just so believes in the world around him. He's so good at just, like, communicating the pulpy dialogue to, like, we will settle this with a lightsaber. Yeah. Like, all of that stuff is great. Though The one limitation also to that lightsaber fight is that he's also, like, 90 and couldn't do any of the stunts. So, like, oh, yeah, yeah, obviously they have, man doing they have, well, but they have to shoot it in a very 
awkward way because Christopher Lee is also, I think, a hard guy to CGI a face onto, and that sure, was yeah. new tech at the time. So, like, they, there's much more limited angles. Like, compared to The Phantom Menace, where they literally a stuntman is playing the character. Yeah, the, like, expert martial artist each right. village. Yeah. yeah, in fact, that's why the best part of the whole lightsaber fight, from a choreographed standpoint, is Yoda versus Count Dooku, because they you just make them both CGI. Exactly. Fuck it, that's all they do with it. It's kind of funny. But, yeah. Um, no, I love Christopher Lee. I do, having not seen as much of The Clone Wars... I do find Count Dooku slightly confusing as a character in terms of his allegiances. And some of that I think is too, is intentional, but like the, the scene where he, uh, it's kind of his introduction scene where he meets uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and he says like, you know, there is a, a Sith Lord named Darth Sidious who's manipulating everything. Join me, come to my side and we can, you know, defeat the Sith forever. He seems very earnest in that moment. Yeah, he's but, supposed to. He's trying to convince Obi-Wan okay. to join his side, but he's working for Sidious right. the whole time. Because so he's, he's doing the same thing to the Separatists. The Separatists okay. do not know that Darth Sidious is doing any of this shit. Yeah. Like, Count Dooku, because this is stuff that, like, they taught, like, the opening crawl sort of tells you some of this, and then they, you hear the name Count Dooku throughout the movie in, in, like, a good movie way of, like, you you know before, like, you know who, like, Christopher Lee's in this movie. You know somebody fucking awesome has to be playing Count Dooku <laughs> or they wouldn't be talking about this dude so much. Um, but, yeah, so, like, like, the whole concept of Count Dooku's role in this movie... And, and it's hard for me to know how much of like this the movie could have done better or not because I just know it. But it is that you know he is sort of playing both sides and that he's really working for Darth Sidious and knows that this war is. I don't know how much he knows about how far Sidious is going to go with it, but he at least one hundred percent is in on we are setting up a war okay. between this separatist faction we're creating and this army that we're giving the Republic because he's also instrumental in the creation of the clone army. That's something you definitely only learn from the show. Um, but the the whole idea is that he goes off, leaves the Jedi Order, becomes and and goes off to the Outer Rim systems to become a figurehead to assemble and create and like stoke the fires of the separatist movement. And so when he has like Poggle the Lesser, the Genosian dude, and and the you know all the Nemoidians and the people of like the the machine factory union or like all those like weird dudes they have assembled around that table. That's him sort of creating the separatist faction, telling them we are going to break away from the Republic because the Republic is corrupt and all these things, and we're going to you know like create our own army and our own power faction and become our own basically like space nation. And and but he secretly knows the whole time that this is just to. Kind of like like orchestrate this this conflict in this war, okay? Because that's the thing Thomas and I were trying to piece together is does he know he's basically part of a false flag operation? How much does he know? Uh, like, does he know he's being set up kind of to fail? Like, in terms of like that the the point is not for his army to win. You know, the separatists aren't supposed to win. They're supposed to be the thing that creates the empire. Yeah, that part, I'm not sure. Okay. I, I think I think he knows that it's ultimately to create the empire. I'm not 100% sure. If but I guess, because he, he, I guess he would know he would have a role in it either yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, the one thing he definitely does not know is that Palpatine is grooming Anakin to replace him, which yes. is something you learn at the beginning of the next movie. Yes. And uh, does he know Sidious is Palpatine? Yes. Okay. Yeah, All right. Yeah, because that's where you... Because the last scene of this movie is him going to, or like, like kind of the last scene of the movie is him going to Coruscant. I know he went to Coruscant, but yeah, he stole his ship and yeah. sees Sidious, and Sidious says, like, that, you know, oh, like, we've 
you know, created the army and, and, and the war is going to happen and, and the city says, everything is going according to plan. It's just an interesting scene because it's the only, it's the first time in the prequels where Ian McDermott is playing Sidious, not as a hologram, but yeah. like in the hood, like in person, flesh and blood. Um, so it's just an interesting moment of unveiling there. But yes, uh, we'll talk about Palpatine's role in all of this in a minute. Yeah. Uh, you know what? No, fuck it. Let's go sure. into that now. Yeah, this is the right place it. to go into it. Um, I love it. It's it's kind of in some ways even more subtle than in the first movie yeah. because he just he just gives a little push at the start in suggesting like, oh, you know what? It would be a good idea if Master Kenobi and his his uh, Jedi apprentice protected uh, Senator Amidala. Yeah, because you haven't even seen Kenobi or Anakin in the movie yet. Yeah, like, it's yeah. just like that'd be a great idea. And he's like, oh, okay, let's do that. And that little push just starts so many things. And meanwhile, in the background, he is also you know he has the whole separatist thing he is orchestrating. He has the clone army waiting somewhere. Uh, let's talk about Sifo DS in a minute too. Also, <laughs> I have a question about that. But anyway, he has that you know going and. Then I love all the conversations around what gives him the extraordinary war powers. It's actually a point I often see as another complaint is like, lol, Jar Jar's the one who created the Empire. Jar Jar's such an idiot. I think that's actually kind of a canny scripting move that Jar Jar is the one who gives the nomination because for democracy to die in such open fashion, good people on the good side have to make significant mistakes. Yeah. And I think it makes sense that Jar Jar, who is you know basically an innocent in all of this, makes that you know original sin mistake in making that nomination. I mean, one, if it weren't Jar Jar, someone else would do it. But also, like, I think it being a character we have a pre-existing tie to is an interesting move there. Yeah. And I just love the way Ian McDiarmid plays all of that stuff with Palpatine. Like, I'm so sorry I have to take on these extraordinary powers. But as my first move, I'll create an army. He's, like, so good at making you believe, like, in the audience. Like, I know you're the bad guy, but you seem so nice. (laughs) Yeah. Because one of the things this movie does is that... Like, you don't see Sidious, like, at all in this movie until the very end. Like, like yeah. he's only, for the most part, he's just playing Palpatine. Yep. But is that stuff of, like, you just see, like, cause it is that thing of, like, if you went in without that extra context, it is so easy to see this movie and not even realize that that's what he's doing. Because he is so playing, like, sort of supporting character, like, you know, like, like a, the president in a movie where, like, the president is a couple of scenes but isn't really, like, integral to the plot so you don't really pay attention to him that much it's like yeah whatever like he's you know, the president whatever uh but he does like he makes that choice of like let's bring kenobi and skywalker in he he sort of pushes anakin and and padme together because he because you know that he knows and you have that one great scene of him and anakin together alone i love yep. like that scene and then you get a couple of like scenes like that in the clone wars cartoon and then in episode three obviously that's one of the standout scenes there i love whenever palpatine and anakin are alone together because you just get that little sense of like like, like Anakin gets to be a little bit more honest about how he feels about politics in the world, and Palpatine gets to use that to sort of just, like, push him a little bit more along the path. He is so evil. Yeah. It's such a great evil because it is so mundane, you know? Yeah, it's and... it's very, like, it's very sort of, like, Snake in Eden kind of thing. It's just, like, yes. like it's a little, like, just, like, whisper in your ear, like, this is how it's gonna go. Or, like, with the, the Jar Jar thing, he just has that whole line where he's talking to, like, the, the vice chancellor, like, whatever, that dude, and saying, it's like, if only... Like, we need somebody who's, like, like bold enough to, like, a senator bold enough to propose this motion. If only Senator Amidala was here, and Jar Jar hears that. And it is something with, like, Jar Jar, another aspect of Jar Jar doing it that works for me is the, like, there's a whole political component of the, the movie doesn't really address this, but I think it makes a lot of sense that 
the planet that like was the first like sort of like like the very early stirrings of what eventually becomes a separatist movement movement Naboo was the planet that was like the forefront of that so it makes 100% like sense that the planet that dealt with those issues first is the one that makes like the push to deal with those issues for real because yes. Naboo is also the planet and like that that made the push to have they that have the old supreme chancellor replaced and then is also the origin of who the new supreme chancellor is so it's like everything kind of revolves around naboo in these small ways that makes sense politically again even if the movie doesn't sort of dive into it it feels like thought went into that that is what happens yes because palpatine put the thought into it this yeah. is a very good plan he put together yeah i mean that's what i love about the one of the things i love about the prequels is it's the story of a villain exacting his plan with 100 percent accuracy yeah and like and the, nobody even notices that it's happened until the very end of the third yes movie. and the only thing that maybe doesn't go according to plan is that he's like uh, is is trainee Darth Vader gets horribly mutilated, but it winds up working out for the best because he gets to put him in a cool black suit. Exactly, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's just it's such an like what other big budget movie over like three films is that the plot? Yeah, like what if at the end of Harry Potter Voldemort just won? Or like not even just Voldemort, like you didn't even realize Dumbledore was, was the bad guy. Yeah, Dumbledore is the bad guy, or it was Ron that motherfucker, <laughs> like that Weasley motherfucker, that Weasley Weasley mother motherfucker, Ron the whole time. He's just pushing Harry. It's like, oh, Harry, like that's a cool spell. But what if you tried this one? But Ron, that's that's a dark spell. That's that's a forbidden spell. Now Harry, now Harry, it's cool. It's cool, man. It'll make you feel good, man. <laughs> in this version it sounds like Ron's a drug dealer that's Please. what what do you think the dark side is man yes indeed once you, once you get lightning you can't stop my friend alright one issue I do continually have with the movie and it's exposition is the whole Sifo DS of it yeah it feels like they're mentioning a character we're supposed to know we don't I was reading about this like the earliest drafts of this script it was a different name and, like, the Jedi didn't recognize it, and it was clear someone had impersonated a Jedi and done this. And that, to me, like, is a cleaner, like, plot exposition uh-huh. thing. And, like, it would have been, like, the implication being it was just Palpatine or Sidious did it at some point, And that would make sense. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I do see the logic of it was a Jedi, and that's why the Jedi accept the clones a little easier. It's just that... It, and I know, like, the extended universe goes into Sifo DS more and all yeah. that stuff. But, like, it just it feels like we're supposed to know. And I've never been able to shake that feeling watching the movie. Yeah, it's something of, of... Because when you break it down, like, what they actually do... Like, what they do is a, like, fucking, like, film noir cliche of, like, what has actually happened is, like, this dude died, Sifo DS... And then the the mysterious villain has used his identity okay. to place this order, like, and that's like there's a couple of lines that in like into me that's like, but I like Obi Wan specifically says, but I thought Sifo Diaz was dead by that point. Okay, and and so like, but the problem is that like most film noir things like show you like will show you the dates, right? They'll like like they'll take out a physical ledger if you're like watching some old film noir movie and be like. Oh, but Sif, like, like this order for the clone army, this is a weird film noir movie, this order for the clone army was placed on November 22nd, 1962. But Sifo Dias died in, in October of 1961. Okay, and see, I think they could have gotten away with that. I think yeah. you could have added the 30 seconds of exposition where, like, Obi-Wan 
or like Yoda or someone is looking at a ledger or something. A Jedi like, ledger, yeah. A Jedi the ledger. Holocron just, is what yes, the holocron. And just makes that direct connection and is like, okay, something's up here. Just to clarify, like, there's some moments where, like, the movie needs to hold your hand a little more than it does. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, it's something that, again, it's something that kind of like with the Count Dooku stuff. I don't know where the movie falls flat because I can't unknow something right. I already know. Yes. So I can't tell where, like, you can deduce that stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Another thing I want to talk about here before we're done is there's four action sequences in this movie. Yes, yeah. There's the fight with Jango Fett in the middle. We talked about that one. Yeah, very good. Very good. The one one I don't like is the one where um, they're in the factory and there's yeah. all stuff going on. That's the part where like they needed to trim that or yes. like cut it and find some other way to get Anakin Pepe captured because it's well. And I was reading much. about this. That was actually done in reshoots. Like in the initial huh. cut of the film after principal photography, that wasn't there at all. And I guess Lucas and friends felt like. The movie was too like flat there, like they needed another action scene, so that's what they added. But I see that's a trend I notice. Like when you add an action scene in post, they're usually very dull because they're not connected to existing character motivations and whatnot. So it's just like there's nothing wrong with it. It's visually well done. It's clear. Yeah, it's like if it's, it's just, something if you watched like the clip on YouTube out of context, you'd be like, yeah, that's a cool little action sequence. In the movie, it's like the movie is so close to its like final act. That, like, yeah. it just drags you, there. You know what it reminds me of a lot? And this is another action sequence added well in post. Is the end of The Desolation of Smaug, the Hobbit movie. Yes, The stuff yes. with the, the the Hobbits versus... Or, sorry, the Dwarves versus Smaug. Uh-huh. It's impressively mounted. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. It's well done. But, like, you are... What you're waiting for is Smaug going to Lake Town. Yeah. Like, and it just... It feels so out of place because it's like... That's not where the story was pushing us. And it just... That's what it feels like to me. But I also remember when I was a kid, I knew going into the... I don't remember if I read the novelization before or after the movie, because this would have clarified it for me. But whatever the case... Because maybe this wasn't in the novelization. That might have been the issue. But um, I, I knew Anakin was going to lose his arm somewhere in the film. Because, like, George Lucas did not give a shit about spoilers for the prequels. Like, go back and watch the trailers for these movies. I watched the one for Attack of the Clones. It just does the movie. Like, it takes you through the film. Revenge of the Sith did the exact same thing. So I knew he was going to lose the arm. And there's that moment in the, the factory sequence where he gets it stuck in that thing. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I thought, oh, no, this is where he's going to lose his arm. Because I had no sense of, like, dramatic, like, you wouldn't do that in the end of the second act. You yeah. know? That would be a horrible way to do that. Like, Anakin's just really incompetent and lost it in the fucking vice here. Yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of character drama in that. That's yes. like, oh, I just lost it in an industrial accident, yes. actually, Obi-Wan. It wasn't cut off by my evil dad or something. Yes. But anyway, so those are the two ones in the middle. There's a big one at the end, big one at the or and big one at the beginning. And the two other action sequences, the beginning and end ones, I think are the best action maybe in any of the George Lucas Star Wars movies, with the possible exception of the opening to episode three. Sure. Yeah. But the the so let's talk about the first one. The chase on Coruscant yeah. is one of the best action sequences I've ever seen in a movie. I love it so much. I want to hug that action sequence and just breathe it in. It is so it takes you through so much of this world. It feels like they, like any other movie, would have taken all the stuff they worked to do on Coruscant, and that would be the whole film. Uh-huh. Like it is such a big, rich, awesome world, and you go through so many phases of it. And some of it is very clearly a Blade Runner homage. Like they go through that area with all the fire coming up. Yeah. Like that's just Blade Runner, and the holograms are just Blade Runner. But so much else of it, there had never been anything quite like what they show with Coruscant and the way. They do this huge speeder action chase sequence using that geography. I think is a real achievement. And it's also where I made the connection like, oh, right. That's Mass Effect. 
and that's Halo. And like, right. there's a whole part that looks like the part in Halo 2 where the chief drops to bring the bomb back. That's like pulled right from this sequence. Yeah. Like so much of video games pull from Coruscant in this movie specifically. Yeah, no. It's just, it's a really invigorating scene. It's also interesting because it's a kind of action scene that Star Wars movies don't typically do. No. It's because it's, it's, it's a car chase scene. Like it's literally a car chase scene. Obviously it has a cool lot of cool sci-fi shit that allows them to do stuff that, you know, like Bullet couldn't do or something. But it's a, it's a fucking car chase scene. It's not a big battle sequence. It's not a like a dogfight sequence. It's not a sword fight, which is yeah. like those are like the three normal action scenes in a Star Wars movie. It is just like fucking straight up car chase. And it's and this, awesome. And this is one of the things I wrote in my notes while I was watching the movie is that this is the kind of thing we don't and never will get any of in Disney Star Wars because we don't go to places like this. We yeah. don't have the opportunity to do an action sequence like this. And that's a shame because it's just... you want, Like it's so weird. Like the prequels actually feel so much more innovative now after seeing Star Wars kind of go back to old patterns because you're like, oh, right, this is the kind of, you know, imagination and innovation that we don't really get with Star Wars because we're coloring within a certain set of lines. George Lucas didn't give a shit. He yeah. do whatever he wants. And what he wants to do here is space car chase with all these floating cars and just like the amount of detail and the amount of shit going on. It is nuts. And I think it's just a, an amazing scene. Yeah, it's like thinking about like George Lucas behind it it, it makes a lot of sense with his involvement in the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, yeah. 100%. This is like, it's yes. maybe the most Indiana Jones Star Wars action sequence. Yes. And then there's the entire climax. And I include everything in the arena. Yeah. Like the initial stuff where they have to uh, get themselves free and yeah, fight, fight the fight monsters. The, like the Acklay and the Nexu and the Ronto I love all those like beasts. That. Yeah. I love when Mace Windu comes in and we don't know he has a purple lightsaber. But he ignites his purple lightsaber. And of course Samuel L. Jackson has a purple lightsaber because he has to. Yeah. And it's awesome. And then all the Jedi are fighting together. And this is the first time we get a real indication of that the Jedi... The race doesn't matter. Like, there's Jedi of all alien species yep, you've together. You've got Luminara and Dooley. You've got Kit Fisto. You've got Ayla Sakura. Fucking Kiati Mundi is there. You've got uh, uh, Plo Koon. You've got all your favorites. And those are all real Star Wars I characters. Know. And a lot of them are in the Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon, which is very good. Yes. And that's amazing. And then it goes outside, and the Clone War begins, and you've got these armies going against each other, and Anakin and Obi-Wan are, like, flying through it, and there's speeder... Like, it's... It is like a kid's wet dream of a Star Wars action sequence. It's everything you could possibly want. It is so exciting. The movie, I think, has built to it so well because the only way to earn that extended a period of action is to have a slower, more talky movie, which is what this is. Yeah. And then just let it erupt at the end into the lightsaber fight, which I think is the weakest lightsaber fight in the prequels. But then Yoda comes in and he force takes out his lightsaber and it's just it's cool. It's yeah. just cool. I mean, and there's good stuff in there. Like, it's, yeah. it's only weak when you compare it to, like, particularly, like, the, the Darth Maul lightsaber fight. But, like, yeah. I also really love the one at the end of episode three. I do too. It's like... But like when you compare it, like I would like I like it more than eh, like the 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 throne room scene in Last Jedi is kind of a different sort of scene. Um, but like I like it more than the lightsaber fight in Episode Seven, which is like interesting but doesn't do much. Like I would, I would put the seven and eight ones above it just because I think there's more character motivation to it sure. all. But yeah, but there's something of like I still I just like I like the style of the the lightsaber fights at the prequels so much. Like I there's a I in particular I like when. 
Well, there's like there's a couple of moments I really love. One I love when when Anakin like just says like no fuck I'm gonna take him now and then fucking just Christopher Lee just laces his ass out with lightning and then turns on Obi Wan and says so this like like you know it's like as you can see my force powers are something you can't possibly compare to whatever like his line is and then he and tries to lightning Obi Wan he blocks it with his saber and fucking Ewan McGregor just gets this just brilliant mic drop that's like. I don't think so. Yes. It, that's really great. Then I like all the stuff with Anakin fighting with two lightsabers. Is just like that's just like fresh. You you hadn't seen that in also a nice setup to his next encounter with Count Dooku. Exactly. Yes, and and I like like the visual of the blue and green lightsaber and, and like the style of it. And when he, I just I love when he just like fucking like slashes the power cord on the floor and the lights go down. And yep. it's just, my, it, that's great. And my brother was like, "Why do you do that?" And I'm like, "Because every lightsaber fight, someone does that to create dramatic lighting. Yeah, it has to look dark because the lightsabers look fucking cool in the dark. Yes, it's that's." why we do it yeah i i also like the i like because it's like it's not as flashy as like the darth maul one but the move that count Dooku does to sort of cut off anakin's hand looks good like it's very deliberate and big but of course the fucking the the moment that had that that people cruelly and 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 wrongheadedly disparaged still to this day but had fucking theaters cheering in 2002 is when yoda when like 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 dooku has them beat Dooku's won. Fucking Anakin's got his hand cut off. Like Obi Wan is has like his arm and leg are like severely injured, and he's on the ground. Dooku's gonna finish them off, and then this silhouette comes slowly walking up from the corner. It's like fucking Luke Skywalker in the Last Jedi before Luke Skywalker in the Last Jedi. Because who is it? It's fucking Yoda. And and I love the whole progression of it. Is at first it's Yoda, and you're like, oh fuck. Yoda's going to fight a motherfucker, and it starts with the Force powers. And I love, I I love any moment that you have Christopher Lee shoot fake lightning from his hands. Every moment like that is is golden and makes the world better. <laughs> In particular, when you have him shoot lightning from his hands, and then fucking Yoda uses the Force to to grab it. And I love it that back. shot. And Such then a good shot. and then when it tries it again, and Yoda just extinguishes it in his hand, and he's just like, it seems you have much to learn yet, my young Padawan. Like all that's it's so good, but. I- yeah. But, well, I was just gonna, no. Continue. I'll okay. Say yeah. But then, so it starts with force powers and having a cool force duel, which is something you've never actually really seen. Is people try to fight each other just with the force, and then you get the great line of Christopher Lee saying, "It seems that we won't be able to settle this duel with our powers of the force. So we're gonna settle it with a lightsaber." And turns his lightsaber on, and and Yoda. Puts his cane on the ground, sweeps his his coat to the side, uses the force to pull out this little lightsaber. Turns his lightsaber on and goes, yeah, and then jumps up and Yoda fucking fights with his lightsaber because he's a fucking warrior monk. That's who he is, and it is awesome. I think there's this whole narrative around how everyone always hated the prequels and everyone knew the prequels were going to be bad, and they everyone knew they were going to be so bad. No one even showed up, and the theaters were empty, and there were just people yelling at the screens. That's not what happened. I remember where I was the day this movie opened. Uh-huh. I was ten. I, rem- I can tell you what theater I saw it in. I can tell you what auditorium it was in. I can probably tell you what fucking row we sat in. And I can also tell you that when Yoda shows up, and especially when he pulls the lightsaber out, everyone in the theater lost their damn fool minds. It's so good. It's so fucking good. There are not many moments in the history of movie going, in my experience, of going to like normal theaters with normal people, yes. that people cheer or clap at anything that ever happens in a movie. Like People will laugh. People will maybe gasp at a horror movie or something. 
but but just full on cheering at a scene in a movie that just doesn't fucking happen. Yes, it, it happened in this movie because Yoda using a lightsaber is awesome, and it is set up in the, it is literally set up in the movie, and it is appropriate. It's one place where it's set up in the movie. I don't think I ever really caught this line doing this, but early on in the movie. Um, um, Anakin, like like Obi Wan says something that's like like you think like your, your lightsaber abilities exceed even Master Yoda's, and Anakin's like, well, well they do. It's like only in your mind, young Padawan. It's like you know that's like Yoda can do some shit because he's the leader of the Jedi Order. Like yes. what? Like I don't understand people who who have like been who were living under this weird Star Wars delusion that somehow every Jedi trained in the lightsaber and that was like part of their training as a Jedi was in the martial arts. And that somehow Yoda is excluded from that because he's old and short. You fucking, you fucking racist, like, like ableist motherfuckers. What is with you? What is wrong with you? He's a short green alien who's old. That doesn't mean he can't kick someone's ass. Of course he can kick someone's ass. He's like the whole, the literal archetype of the Jedi is modeled after the Shaolin monk. It's modeled after religious warriors who practice their philosophy and deepen their spirituality through philosophy and martial arts. And martial arts is like the like physical body part of it is 100% critical. Yes. And it is it is an archetype and a classic archetype in a lot of the like Chinese and Japanese storytelling that so much of Star Wars pulls from in different ways to have like the wizened old martial arts or samurai master who who looks decrepit and and looks like you know like like if you breathe on him and he'd fall over, you know, like Master Roshi from Dragon Ball is an easy reference for this podcast. Like 90% of every fucking kung fu movie or like a Bruce Lee movie or something has a character like this that's like, oh this like he's some old weird dude. Like he's not actually good. Like he just he understands intellectually but he's too old to practice it. And then they lay your ass out because they might be old but they know their shit. They're because Martial arts is as much about the mind as it is about the body. Mr. Miyagi. Exactly. If the Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, never fought, we wouldn't like that movie the way we do. Exactly. He's got to fight. He's, he's got to fight. He's, he's got to throw fight. down. And Yoda throws down, and it is glorious, and it is wonderful, and I think it is easy to lose our childlike sense of wonder at it. But don't. Hold on to it. It matters. And it is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. I also just love that, like they they went for it, and they and it like it's cool that like yes. they came up with a way for Yoda to fight that makes sense for that character. Yes, my and I think the thing that sells it to me honestly isn't even anything in the fight. It's the pulling aside his coat, and he doesn't even bother grabbing it. Yeah. He just force pulls it because of course Yoda would. It's both a power move, and he is just that into the force that he's not. It, all he has to do is move his hand an inch over here. He's not going to do it. Yeah. He's Yoda. Like, just those little character details say so much. Uh, I forgot how good Digital Yoda is in this movie also. Yeah. Like, they make him move uh, uh, outside of, like, that scene a lot. Like, the puppet, like, the ears do that kind of the puppet thing. Like, so they don't make it so radically different. It's really impressive for 2002. Yeah. I actually think when I've gone back and seen when they how they inserted him in The Phantom Menace, I actually think it's worse than in this movie. Like, it seems shoddier and, like, he's, like, the textures are better, but he seems less physical in the scene than he does in this movie and in um, Revenge of the Sith. So yeah. they did a very good job with it. Frank Oz is so great. Yes, yeah. All the writing awesome. for Yoda is very good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anything else we want to say about Attack of the Clones? I think we have gone pretty thoroughly through this. Yeah. Oh, plot hole. Just what? while we're at it. Okay. The C-3PO timeline in the prequel makes no goddamn sense. And we've talked about this, that C-3PO, it's weird that they had Anakin make him in Phantom. Not that it really matters. Yeah. But in this one, he's living with 
Lars and or, uh, with Owen and Brew yeah. and Lars, the, Lars the father the dad, of the patriarch. Yeah. yeah, he's living there. Like thirty years later, Owen is gonna buy back this droid and not remember anything about him, which is like there's just so many little like C three PO doesn't fit in the universe where they've put him, and it's like I'm not gonna say I don't want to see C three PO. It is fun to have him around. It just kind of feels like C three PO maybe shouldn't have been in the prequels if you think about it for more than five seconds. Yeah, I mean I can. On the other hand, I can 100% buy that Owen did, did not remember C-3PO. <laughs> like, how long did he have C-3PO for? Did he really interact with C-3PO that much? And C-3PO went off and, like, an entire fucking war happened, you know? Sure. And, 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 the, and you have, like, since then you have been given charge of and raised to adulthood the, the child of your stepbrother who was mortally crippled by his mentor who is now like the fucking like death squad leader of the empire that oppresses you. He's had some other shit on his mind? I no I understand. He's not but, sitting around reminiscing about the fucking weird ass protocol droid he had when he was 18. I get it. It's just that I actually think one of the impressive things about the Star Wars prequels is they generally avoid those prequel pitfalls where they put something in just for the fan service of it, even if it doesn't make sense. Like, they really do very little of that. C-3PO is, like, the one place they do it, which means, you know what, it's okay. It's one yeah. place. It's just, because they don't do it anywhere else, it's notable when it happens. Yeah, and and he's, like, his part is one of the more tedious parts of the, like, factory sure, yeah. action scene and everything like that. One thing about C-3PO's role in the movie that I do like that has basically nothing to do with C-3PO, but it's something that I always remember about this movie, um, is it's such a weird, nerdy little thing. But, you know, it's the whole sequence where uh, the heads have been switched between yes. C-3PO's body and the battle droid. And so it's C-3PO on a battle droid's body and he's one walking around in the middle of like the giant Jedi like battle royale situation they're in. And then... Kit Fisto, who is the, like, like I forget what his race is called, but he's, like, the aquatic Jedi with, like, big, like, green head tentacles and stuff. Force pushes over C-3PO, and he falls over, and then it cuts back to Kit Fisto, and he gives this little smile. I have always remembered that. It's this weird, it's a great tiny moment. moment. But it's something about, like, the, the you know, I've, I've, it's kind of funny to rattle off the names of all, like, the incidental Jedi characters that got expanded in the expanded universe that are in that scene. But, like, there's, like, they are legitimately interesting character designs that, like, leap out at you when you, like, yeah. that, like, I can identify them immediately on screen. It's like, oh, there's Kiati Mundi. There's, like, Ayla Secura. Like, she's, like, it's a long shot. And I can tell that that's Luminar Unduli. Like, like, yes, it's because I've seen, like, the TV shows and, and read some of the books and the comic books and stuff. But it's still, like, those character designs pop. And Kit Fisto is really cool. And he's, like, a happy-go-lucky, cool fucking Jedi guy. And he gives that little smile because he knows. He knows that it's goofy and it's funny. Um, I like that. The C-3PO thing is also another one of the echoes of Empire Strikes Back. In that at the end of that right. movie, he gets taken apart. He That's gets right. taken apart here. Like, it is interesting how much this one has the middle one. Without even... It only borrows some of the overall structure. But it does a lot of different little things, both structural and... Just like uh, thematic to mirror Empire Strikes Back, and I think that's kind of an interesting theme. Yeah, going through the here. the one last point I think we need to make because I will not let us go in any of these discussions without at least commenting. Fucking Ben Burt and the sound design yes, and so everything good. he does for these movies are so good. In particular, this movie. The fucking seismic charges in the asteroid fight is one of the coolest sound effects in any movie. There's, it's, I mean, and the effect, I love, like, the big practice, practice, like, disc explosion thing is cool. But just the, like, sound, particularly that is something that, like, 
I will like that's a memorable part of seeing the movie in the theater is that sound effect is so fucking good. Um, Django Fett's blasters have an awesome sound effect, and and every time he comes out with like a, there's, there's a new Star Wars movie or there were new Star Wars movies that had new blaster sound effects, and it's like what is Django's blaster going to sound like? That sounds fucking cool. And then the final like the third sound design point I want to sort of just shout out is in the speeder chase at the beginning of the movie. There's I don't know if it's it's sound design or if it's part of the soundtrack. <laughs> it's impossible to tell. But ever but like when they cut to the the enemy like assassin speeder speeding away, it makes this high pitched whale noise like 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 W A I L whale, not like like aquatic whale whale noise, and that is so distinctive and like I don't know how to describe it, but it's so good and it's so woven into the texture of like the sound of those scenes that I legitimately don't know if it's a part of the music or part of the sound design. But but like every time it sort of like banks away and makes this high pitched wail, it's so good. I, I love that sound effect too. Uh, ben Burr, we should also say he was the co editor on Phantom Menace. He's the sole editor on Attack of the Clones. Yeah. So doing some those are not like. Those are complimentary roles in a film, but you usually don't have one person fill them because they're big fucking jobs. Yeah. And he edited and did the sound design. It's he is a genius. Yeah. And yeah. like yet yeah, somehow this movie didn't get a sound nomination. That should be like the most obvious thing in the fucking world. Star Wars should always get that. Yeah, somebody like like someone working behind the scenes at the Academy Awards that year should have just like hacked the feed and just played the sound effect of the seismic bomb and yes. then like you're fucking like the Academy Award goes to Star Wars for sound design because listen to this like that's so dope that's like fucking like like techno music before techno music was techno music yes they were too busy recognizing Chicago that year for things yeah. it didn't deserve uh, anyway alright so that is Star Wars Episode 2 Attack of the Clones I think we have done this one thorough justice yes exhaustive detail yes um, we're gonna be back at some point in a few weeks with Revenge of the Sith yeah I mean, obviously, the podcast will be back next week and in the weeks to come. Where we will take we'll, another Star Wars week off. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about something next week. Yeah, now, I mean, actually, before Revenge of the Sith, we're going to have to talk about every single episode of the Clone Wars. So that's where I, we're going next. You, you say that like that's a joke, but you know, like I'm going to be watching that at some point now. It's <sighs> Star Wars. It's 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 a hell, but it's the hell I choose to live in. <laughs>